Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. Listening to it again, nearly crazy because she's such an cute. I've gone through the whole way representative of that on Twitter and that's to the hog. So yeah. they can't get the answers. How are the people going to get the answers? They know how hard I work and to get nothing at the end of it is very, very hard. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Mind with PJ Coogan. Coach 96 FM. Is it me? And it might be, because many things are just me. Is it me, or is that sky trying to clear a little bit? We weren't expecting that, but if I look out the window of Studio One here at Broadcasting House and look to the left, down towards the harbour, that sky looks a lot less brutal than you thought it might, given the weather forecast. Now, the weather forecast was for almost for Armageddon but it hasn't worked out that way the fair supper rain has fallen and there's more to fall but was it really as bad as we were told it was going to be it was bad enough last night now there's a fair drop of water fell overnight I know that and actually it was a huge huge crowd that turned up even despite the rain I saw a video going around late last night from the protest, the demonstration opposite Chambers. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. People were estimating five or six hundred people turned up at that protest on the steps of the courthouse last night, which uh, we found out about and told you about here uh, yesterday. That was good to see. But the weather doesn't seem to be as bad. There's a big flood on Pope's Quay, we're being told. Thank you for that. And if there is anything that we are missing, this is where... We end up with a production team of 68, 69, 70,000 people every morning. If there's something we haven't spotted, if the rain has caused trouble that we don't know about anywhere across the city and county, particularly down west in rural areas with narrow roads or down east in rural areas with, with narrow roads, do let me know. Best way to do that, 083 396 Pop it into a voice note. If there's something we need to be watching. All right, would you do that for me? Thank you. Although it doesn't look like... It looks like that might clear later on. Certainly the forecast for tomorrow is, is a little bit better. Uh, I'm going down west for the weekend and I'm just hoping we won't be completely washed out of it. 
How and ever, let us get down to business on this Friday morning, Friday the 15th day of September, the opening night of the uh, new Late Late Show, fronted by Patrick Keelty. That's tonight. We'll, uh, we'll look at that later on. We'll chat with Crossy about it uh, later on. But first, I want to talk to someone who... To look at her back in October of 2016, to look at her picture and to listen to her eulogy at the funeral of her beloved husband and to hear a few interviews with her over the years. At that time, she was broken. Broken, smashed, left bewildered, left absolutely bewildered and bereft by what had happened. I speak of Olive Foley, um, wife of Anthony Foley. And as a rugby fan, as an Irish fan, as a Munster rugby fan, there were very few occasions in the last eight or nine years that affected any of us, like the death of Anthony Axel Foley. One of the nicest, funniest, most genuinely likeable fellas in the history of Irish sport. And an animal on a rugby pitch into the bargain. Um... He left when he died. He died, God, he was only 42. He was only two weeks short of his 43rd birthday. He died on October 16th, 2016. It was a Sunday and there was a match on. They were in France for it. And he was found dead in his hotel room. And I remember I was driving home for that match to watch that match when I heard it on the on the radio news. And I'll never forget what followed. And the following Friday, we all got together the radio stations around the country and we played a specially commissioned version of the Fields of Athenry as a mark of respect to Anthony as his funeral took place and um, Olive gave the eulogy at that funeral and she joins me now Olive, I, I, I think vaguely we may have spoken before you and I but, but, but how are you now and how are Tony and Dan? Good morning Good morning, PJ. How are you? PJ, you nearly have me in tears listening to that. Um, PJ, we're great. Thank God. Um, uh, It's seven years on and um, God, I mean, anybody who suffered grief knows the pain and, you know, that suddenness Anthony died so suddenly. Um, So we had, um, you know, we had a, we had a very rough ride there for a few years, but, you know, I was saying during the week, you know, that, um, you know, we all, you can survive grief. You don't die from grief. You survive it and you learn to live with it. And, you know, we, we live a very rich and fulfilled life, Good. even though we still grieve. You know, we still miss Anthony every day, but we're doing great, PJ. We Good. really are. Thank I'm, God. Yeah. I'm very glad to hear it. The lads are, mm. I was doing me sums, Olive, 15 and 18 now. You have two teenagers yeah. in the house. I've two fully grown men, PJ, if you can see them. <laughs> two big whoppers of um, big teenage boys, yeah. And do they're, they, they're do more they take like after their, their dad, dad in the bill, do they? <laughs> they really are. They're huge big fellas. And um, yeah, and they're great. Like, honestly, PJ, they don't give me an ounce of trouble. They're great little fellas, you know. Do they play? Yeah. 
They're both playing, yeah. Oh gosh, they are. Um, we're, we've I've a path worn up and down to Prez and, and Christians up there. They're both playing with their school and they play with Shannon, yeah. And sure, they're both involved with a monster set up there during the summer, you know, the little underage um thing. So no, they're doing great and they're playing away uh, and and they have they have a great old life. The two of them, they do That's really fantastic. Because you you, you talked mm. about being close to tears listening to me. I can tell you that mm. they and you, but they reduced big grown men to tears me among them many times in the months after Axel's <gasps> passing when they were brought onto a pitch and given a jersey given a flag your home fa- your entire family Olive was embraced with love did that help at all oh absolutely I mean just to th- sure we were propped up um, by you know uh our community, you know, Killaloo, it's a, you know, it's a lovely town. Um, you know, they really rallied behind us. Um, and the whole Munster family, of course, I mean, that it brought everybody very close together. And, you know, to get that level of support, you know, when you have loss, you need support, especially then that immediate aftermath of Anthony's death. You need all the help and support that you can get. And I took it from every angle. You know, I, I, anybody that was offering me help, I took it. Thank you very much. And mm. I took it, yeah. And mm. then and then it fades and you're left to deal with the grief. And that's and, when it's not difficult. And, 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 you know, it does fade, but that's all right too. Do you know, it is mm. a, it's not like people just stop coming to, you know, you still have your lovely, uh, you know, uh, for me, you know, I have my friends, families, Anthony's family, my family, at Killaloo, I've lost some really amazing friends and, you know, they, they stick by you, you know. So it's all right that people still are not flooding the town of Killaloo to come to see us because you have to learn to live, yeah. uh, you know, you've got to get back on track and you have to live a life. I had two young children. We had to get back to school. We had to get back to work. We had to get back to living. And it is a new life, but it can be a lovely new life as well. You know, it can be, I'd give hope to Yes. Anybody, That's you know, great. who's grieving, I absolutely would. You can live a great life mm. and grieve with us, do you I, know. You've been speaking this week, Oliver, about the role in that. I hate the word to use recovery. Remember, we're rebuilding more than recovery. But mm. the role that the Children's Grief Centre played in that with the two boys. Talk to me about it. I know. Uh, do you know, I'd never heard of the Children's Grief Centre before Anthony died. And it was one of those things that people came to me after and said, you know, there's a there's a children's grief centre in Limerick. They're meant to be incredible. They help these children who are grieving. Uh, uh, and uh, so I got in contact with them. Um, Sister Helen Colhan had set up the centre 10 years previous to that. And, you know, I went in to meet her and, you know, they provide the most valuable service you could imagine a grieving mother needs for her children. So, and what is that? Uh, Put words on it. So it's a be- it's a beautiful centre. So they it is full of volunteers. It's actually volunteer led. Sister Helen Callan is a sister of mercy known herself. So it's this beautiful place in Limerick. You bring your children in and they provide a listening service. It's not referral based or anything. You just literally, I rang up the phone and went, we're coming in and in we went. And, you know, the kids got, you know, I brought them in maybe once every two weeks or, you know, maybe once a week, once every two weeks, whatever um, suited us at the time. And uh, they just had one-to-one support. It's a listening service done with play music and just listening 
And, you know, it rebuilds children. I saw a difference in my children uh, from the minute they started going in there. It is this beautiful, warm environment. And to this day, my children still love it. They still love it in there. It's it's a, just a beautiful Do place. Do they still go? They don't still go, but... Do you know that they absolutely can? You know, I oh. could ring up the phone. Do you know, if they were having a bad day, I can actually ring them up and go, is it possible to fit them in maybe next week or the week after? And, you know, that that's the type of service they provide. Do you okay. know, there's no there's no big complicated referral system. It is very simple. Ring up oh, and really? book in. So no, self, yeah. self-referral, yeah? You didn't have to be referred? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. no, no, no. It's a great service. You know, volunteer-led, it's it's it's. Yeah, it's brilliant. Thank God we have it. Yeah, and people come from all over. I know you said it's it's, it's Limerick based, but I know people go from Cork yeah. and Tipperary and Waterford. They do. They, yeah, yeah we're, they're coming from all over. It is 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 the only one of its kind um, in Ireland, um, and it has it, you know it has gotten a lot of publicity. People know about it. Grieving people, you Google it, they find it. So they do travel. And I know myself, you would go to the ends of the earth when you have two children who need help. You will go to the ends of the earth. So people just sit into the cars, they bring their children to us. Um, I mean, ideally, you'd have a children's grief centre in every main main city in Ireland or every main town in Ireland. Um, but may, that might come someday. But for now, it is the only one of its kind. Yeah, like they were eight and 11 at the time. And they'd had, they'd had their hero wrenched away out of their lives. That's an awful lot for oh, two small boys to take. Absolutely. And they were just broken little kids, you know. They were devastated. And it really was a whirlwind, you know, the suddenness, the enormity of the funeral, the, you know, the gestures. The, I mean, the post that used to come, the postman used to come with his two arms out, laden down every day with letters and mass cards and mass bouquets. And, um, you know, it, it was a real whirlwind of a time. And then... You know, and I think this goes for everybody that um, children do, you know, they're looking at me going, oh, my God, don't make mom cry. So they protect you and they don't so they don't want to tell me that they're having a bad day or they're really upset or whatever. So they they tend to hide how they're feeling. Well, this is my own experience and I think it it is it can be across the board. But so they needed help. They needed outside help. They needed somewhere to go outside of me and outside of our home outside of our families. And that's what the grief centre was able to provide for them. Yeah, that's interesting. Their instinct was that broken and all as they were themselves, their instinct was to protect mammy. Yeah, I know. But Weird, just, nobody wants. Yeah, nobody wants to look at their mother crying. And I cried an awful lot. <laughs> but she did. Mm-hmm. But she did. Um, so, mm. so they're good now. How are you? They're great. I'm great. I'm very busy. Who um, you, Just Olive? to follow up. Who did you did you have? Um, you know, Sister Helen, who who set up the Children's Grief Centre, really became we became really good friends. Uh, we just hit it off from the from the moment I met her. I leaned on her an awful lot. Um, so what I found was I uh, started helping in the Grief Centre. Helen then asked me to come on board as ambassador. And it gave me a great purpose, you know, in your own pain and suffering, if you thought you could help somebody else. It's it it is lovely, um. So I came on board as ambassador just to highlight the work of the grief centre to help with fundraising, and to promote the centre itself. And now I'm actually working 
with widows as well. So if somebody brings in their children into the grief centre, you know, uh, they'll be asked if they'd like to sit down and have a cup of tea with another widow. And um, it's actually lovely um, to be able to give back. I know myself that, you know, a, a girl I used to work with um, came to me after Anthony died and said, you know, my husband died two years beforehand. And, you know, and I said, please, would you, I need to talk to you. <laughs> so she came to my house and she used to come to my house maybe once every few weeks and have a cup of tea with me. And that hour, I found it just so helpful to talk to somebody else who mm-hmm. has been through the same thing. Yeah. Do you yeah. know? You, you think, and, and it's the most, you think, I, I think everybody who loses either a parent or a spouse or, or any other kind of loved one or even a best friend, they think, mm-hmm. Olive, that it's, that the, the first person it's ever happened to. Yeah. It's it's a I weird know. thing. It's I think so you go true. through it, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. I know that the centre is interested in expanding its work and maybe even looking into Cork. Well, that would be the dream. Now, Sister Helen is, is, is um, she, I was saying that she's obviously volunteer. She is with the Sisters of Mercy. We wouldn't have the capacity. Just Sister Helen is one woman. Band. Mm. But it would be lovely if somebody pick up the ball. Wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, that would be the dream. <laughs> um yeah. So, I mean, that would be the dream for us. We're, we're, uh, we've just opened a brand new building. This is why uh, this is a busy week for us. You know, we expanded. We got a beautiful new building. It was gifted to us by the Sisters of Mercy. Gorgeous new building um, up O'Connell Avenue in Limerick. Yeah. We've done a massive renovation. We raised 3.5 million euro to renovate it. And it gives us the capacity to see more children. We have a big demand. You know, Helen has already seen, oh, Helen and her volunteers have seen um, over 2,000 children in the last uh, 14 years since wow. it's, it was set up. Yeah. And uh, we have the capacity now because there has been waiting lists, you know, over the years there has been waiting lists and the idea is to get that waiting list. So, you know, you get a phone call from a mother who's grieving and it isn't just children um, who have been bereaved through death. It is children who have suffered grief in many other ways. Another main form of children's grief is parental separation. This mm-hmm. is a huge part of the mm-hmm. work of the grief centre. Mm-hmm. And children, some children really suffer when parents separate. Um, that grief can be as bad as the grief of the death of somebody they love. So yeah. um, as you can imagine, you know, so there is huge demand for the service. It is, um, so it's something that we've always dreamed of expanding. And that dream was realized this week when we uh, got into our beautiful new building. We had Minister Norma Foley down to open it. It was a really big deal for us. We were very excited. So, so Olive, what would it take to get an expansion into Cork? It would take a place and it would take people. It would take place, volunteers. It would take people. But maybe it's there. Maybe there's somebody listening. You know, that's maybe. why that's, yeah. that, that's yeah. why that's why I'm putting it out there. You know, because yeah. Yeah. I know that a and, lot of people do travel from Cork. Yeah, they do. They travel from Cork, and you know, Sister Helen is very willing to help. I'm volunteering her. If she's listening now, she'll be laughing. But absolutely, she is the most giving and wonderful person you'll ever meet. You know, she's a qualified, she qualified in psychotherapy herself, mm. worked with the HSE, worked for Milford in dealing with grief. She saw the need 
you know, when she was dealing with um, grieving families, she saw this huge need for children specific, children specific um, centre to be set up. You know, she has a great, she had a great vision 14 years ago. She was very lucky with the Sisters of Mercy that they were able to back her. You know, they did, they were an amazing congregation in Limerick for the Children's Grief Centre. We you know, we have to give them that. They were absolutely amazing. To this day, they've been so supportive and wonderful. It's probably a question best addressed to, to Sister Helen herself. Absolutely. Where, yeah, did, where absolutely. did she get the idea from? Well, being in Milford, you know, Milford Hospice um, yes. here in Limerick, yes. um, you know, she, uh, in her capacity as a psych- as a psychotherapist, was got involved with um, with meeting and dealing with the bereaved uh, and grieving families, you know, and then she, uh, and then I mean, Limerick, it would it had the highest rate of um, separation in the country at the time, and she could see this need to all these children who supported these children who are suffering in another grieving way. So it was her own instinct and her own vision, and it was, and it really took off from the very start. You know, it's a great service. A brilliant service from our community. It's a very busy place, very popular. Yeah. And the support we've gotten, you know, when you see 2,000, you know, there's 2,000 children have gone through the centre. Uh-huh. That is a lot of families, it's you know, in, in Limerick and the surrounding counties. So every one of them know about this centre. So we have great support from them, you know, with coffee mornings, events, you know, uh, loads of people to come and support us because we it's a charity. We need help. You know, we're not government funded. We need we need help with it all the time. Well, just like you have Milford there in, in Limerick, we have a much loved hospice Marymount here in Cork. And yeah. and it would be wonderful to start something mm-hmm. like a branch of, of the, what sounds like an incredible service. It would be fantastic yeah. to, to get it into Cork. I mean, at the moment, mm-hmm. I see that there's there's like there's a waiting list unfortunately to see to get your first appointment which which is unfortunate yeah. but it's there yeah yeah that's the reality unfortunately but you know there's a there's some amount of volunteers out there willing to help you know it, it, we have been just so taken by the the incredible people who are right. willing to help you know, and you know, PJ, you listen, the amount, if I got a pound for everybody, every adult who has said to me, I wish there was a children's grief centre there when I was a child. Yes. You know. You know that's the endorsement. You know, the, that is the hmm, endorsement. That's the, that's, that's the difference that it makes in these children's lives. Children's you know, Grief Centre. Children's mm-hmm. Grief Centre, all one word, dot IE is the website. Is there a contact number? Is there a, a helpline number of any kind? All available on the website. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. One last one, Olive. Mm. You know, we're in the start of of, of the World Cup, um, and I'm sure that you know, if he was still with us, Axel would be head, neck, and tail involved in the Irish setup in some <laughs> yeah. way. Does it does it make yeah. it hard to watch and enjoy the game, or do you still watch and enjoy the game? Do you know the kids? Of course, are obsessed um, with rugby, and they're big into it. Um, it has re, you know, I've noticed myself the last few weeks, it's really brought back floods of memories. Mm. I have great memories of enjoying World Cups with Anthony. Um, you know, we were in Australia 2003. Uh, is that 20 years ago? Yes, yeah, it 20 is, yeah. years ago. 
Um, do you know, while we mightn't have had the greatest memories of um, the Tory Cup finals, I'm hoping it'll change this year. Um, but no, it is, it's, a spe- it's a very special time. I have wonderful memories of Anthony playing and the fun we had. Mm. And I watch all the girls, uh, the wags, as they call themselves, <laughs> or as they are called. And I'm watching them online on the Instagram and everything going, oh, I hope they're enjoying every single second of it. You don't know when. You know, you, yeah. you don't know how long that joy and the fun lasts for. Yeah. So it's important they all enjoy it, yeah. yeah. What, yeah. what, what, I, what I miss I about him, um, just as someone who, I used to meet him at matches and I'd meet him after he stopped playing, you'd meet him at training sessions and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And my, my, my late and much-loved friend, Frank O'Brien, and himself always got on great. But the one thing I miss is, if he was around, is I'd be looking for him for an interview because he was the most hilarious man to interview when he was in the mood. <laughs> That's what I remember. Oh, PJ, that's gas. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have known that. I'll have to tell the kids when they come home from school that Dad was hilarious. I remember asking him one time. I said to him after a match, you know, I said, "How do you feel after that?" He said, "When you get up in the morning, he said the water hurts in the shower. That's where you start." <laughs> Oh, Peter, that's a great one, yeah. yeah. Well, his son, Tony, is 18 and he comes out with some cracking one-liners well, as well. And he didn't I, make I it off the stones, Olive. He didn't make it off the stones. His father, yeah. yeah. Listen, oh, that's I'm lovely, Peter. Lovely, lovely speaking you. with you. Great to hear you in such good form. And yeah. um, if we can ever do anything to help the Children's oh, Grief Centre, you have our number. Ah, oh, that's wonderful. I appreciate that. Great chatting to you. Thank you, you Peter. You too, you too. Olive Foley, uh, 818. 96, 96, 96. If you need to know more about it, childrensgriefcenter.ie. It is all one word. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. I'll read it in a minute, but it kind of got a slap on the wrist from Catherine. Uh, in on the back of our discussion, which started Wednesday morning with me talking about the price of baby formula, and Tasha rang up about it, and a few more people rang, and turned into quite a lively little conversation about baby formula, and then the whole breastfeeding lobby um, was mentioned. Catherine sent me what I can only interpret as a bit of a slap on the wrist. And I will read that. I will read that. I'm always interested to read your slaps on the wrist. No doubt, I earn them from time to time. But that that's coming. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Something else we talked about this week was USC. It seems clear now that with the budget coming up in October, let me tell you for certain, the budget is twenty five days away. Twenty five days from now is budget day, and on that day, something will happen with regard to the much despised. Universal social charge. There are those, like Mick Barry was saying again during the week, that they should eliminate it overnight, scrap it overnight, like they brought it in overnight, and there'd be a lot of people would agree with him. Economists say do what you do carefully, whatever it is that you're going to do, Minister. We don't know, but we know something's going to happen with the universal social charge in and the budget in October. It was Brian Lenehan who brought it in when he was Minister for Finance. So, Joe Seward, you could imagine that politically it would look good for Michael McGrath if he was the minister who started to phase it out. Are we looking at a game of politics here? Good morning. 
Good morning, uh, PJ. Yeah, it is. Um, I suppose it's the time of year when the the political parties have their thinkings and thoughts are very much focused in on the budget. But I think thoughts are also focused in on the possibility of an election in the second half of next year. Mm. Um, initially, people were speculating that we might have an election in 2025, but uh, there's been murmurings that it could be in the second half of next year. So Leo, Leo fact, was pressed on uh, it this morning, actually, on national radio. Leo was pressed a little bit on it, um, and he didn't say yay or nay to early November next year. Yeah. Yeah, that, that had been the murmuring. So this budget will be important from that perspective. Um, and while, you know, speculation about a giveaway budget, um, you know, there's been a lot of need to balance that with the need to be frugal as well. Economists, as you mentioned in your introduction, have been saying, be careful, you know, while the coffers are good, uh, it's important to be a little bit frugal. But Michael McGrath did suggest that, uh, at the horse and jockey at the Fianna Fáil thinking this week that, um, there would be cuts to those, um, you know, for the USC, for those on on low incomes and on middle incomes. He, they were the people that he was looking to focus in on. But I did note last night, Holly Cairns um, at the Social Democrats um, thinking she came out saying that they would not make any cuts to the USC and that it was a, a time, you know, for politicians not to be playing politics mm. and, you know, not, not to be, you know, looking ahead to the election and, and, and turning this into a giveaway budget. So she, she came across um, direct opposite to um, Michael McGrath. Yeah, you'd wonder, is that wise to be saying that? Because is there a thing, Joe, in, and you're following politics as long as I'm following politics, is there anything in the last... 15 to 20 years, okay, water charges, let's bank them. But anything other than water charges in the last 15 to 20 years that he's as hated as the USC? It's absolutely despised. I, I, I remember, you know, in the early days of the USC when it came out first, somebody used the analogy of uh, it's it's more hated than Thierry Henry when the goal, the famous <laughs> handball goal mm. in, in Paris. Somebody drew an analogy with that in, in, in a sporting parallel. Um, and, and people likened it to the penal laws back in, in, in previous times. So it has been despised, as you say. And mm. um, People who defend people who People who defend it will say, well, it is a tax on every cent you earn, and whether you earn 20,000 or 220,000, it's the only one of them that you pay proportionally. And whether you're self employed or PAYE, there's no way out of it. You have to pay your USC, or they'll come after you. So it is in that way, it's fair and equitable. Yeah, and, but, but people will point to the fact that when Brian Lenehan brought it in, I think it was December 2010, that obviously it was a very different Ireland and um, we were on our knees financially yeah. um, and under the behest of the Troika. And it was seen as a, a short-term fix um, and that it wouldn't be around forever. But no, people have gotten used to it. But as you say, it's been heightened now again, the, the narrative about it in the last few days. With Michael McGrath, Fine Gael for a while had been suggesting that it needed to be abolished, but again, people felt they were paying politics uh, on that. On that, there's a lot of people have suggested that middle-income earners ha have been very, very frustrated by the current government. So that's maybe why the move to you know to cut make mm. cuts has been you know so apparent that I think there was a, a poll in the Sunday Business Post recently. And I think seven out of ten people voted to to abolish the USC to go further than cuts to abolish it completely.
Yeah. Um, Leon Varadkar is on record as saying he wants nobody under the industrial wage, so the av- or the average industrial wage of 40, 41, 42. He wants nobody under that wage to be paying the high rate of income tax. And also, he wants nobody under that wage to be paying the high rate of USC. So, so he definitely wants to bring it down. But then I remember Enda Kenny being challenged at one of the election campaigns over the years, and he said, I'd, I'll eliminate it if you tell, I'll get rid of it if you tell me where I'm going to get 4.3 billion euro from. Yeah, I think it, it almost brought um, that coalition government to their knees that time, Andy Kenny and Eamon Gilmore. They eventually had to come to a, a kind of a compromise solution, I think, ahead of a budget. Um, but L- Labour, I think back then, Labour, you know, they, they wanted a higher USC for income earners over 100,000, I think. Right. But yeah, eventually they still do, they do a, a U-turn on that. Yeah, here's one. People can chime in with whatever they want on the USC. I, I, I would love to get rid of it, but I also recognise the economic difficulty of doing that in one fell swoop. But I certainly like to see uh, less of a bashing in my in my uh, pay packet every month. This is. I didn't hear this interview this morning, Joe. But people are talking about it. Eamon Ryan, the whole situation with the funding of RTE and people just not paying their television license. Um, and like again, I was discussing with the Queen Bee the other night, and she's just not going to pay it. She, she, that's, she's the one picked up that bill in our house, and she says, "No, not going to pay it and they, they, uh, until they start dragging me up out, out the out the driveway by the hair." That'll be interesting. But someone said here, I was listening to Eamon Ryan. This is Sarah. I was listening to Eamon Ryan this morning saying he might issue a household charge to save RTE. Are they living on another planet? Talk about not leaving. Well, I was thinking when I. Yeah, go on. Yeah, when I heard that, it, it reminded me of p- people talk about um, watershed moments in politics can bring that can bring down governments. This would be one. This would be akin to, and you know, I'd be old enough to remember Richie Ryan's levy on shoes, oh. which was sound of the death knell for that government, in the Liam Cosgrave coalition government, uh, and that would be something similar. Um, so, you know, speaking of RT, somebody was telling me who who appeared on that Katie Hallam program on Monday night that there was only over 30 staff working on that program alone. Mm. Uh, and he, he was surprised to see, you know, that that levels of staffing for a program. Um, so again, you know, people question uh, RT running as a leaner outfit, um, you know, tightening tightening how it's run. The, the model of RT wouldn't be run like a, a lean, you know, um, um, multinational company um, and, well, and that, what I think Eamon know, is suggesting here and he wouldn't be the first now to be fair but he's the latest to suggest that so many people have decided after the Tuberty affair and flip flop gate and, and other such things that they're not paying their television license and his attitude is well we'll get it off you anyway through revenue in a, in a household charge like that, that's, 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 that's fighting talk coming out of a man who can't afford to fight it's really it's it's very very strong fighting talk because in, in another poll recently suggested that Catherine Martin is the only green party td sure maybe to hold on to her seat in the next election he would be seen as a um, very vulnerable in the next election as well but as you say very very strong it, it people who are paying the tv license then would see that as unfair they'd have a double whammy and there well, are lots of law abiding citizens they want, to, who, who, they want to eliminate the license payment and replace it with a household or, charge. Or just re- replacing it, yeah. Well, it's Through interesting, revenue. but... Um, 
I don't know. It's G- given what's given what's gone on, and and now the talk about the sale of the the, the site, uh, mm. it, it, you know, as again, and then, and then you'd you know. Michael Martin chiming in on that one yesterday, saying, "Well, no, hold on now. If you sell land and sell buildings, you make money now, but it's not sustainable. You pay off some debts, and then you're back at square one again. It's it's an interesting discussion. What do you, Joe? Look, we try. I said twenty five days out from the budget. I, I do you think that it, who are they going to focus? If you had one idea as to who they'll focus on to try to win them round in the polls. Who will they focus on, do you think? I think um, the middle-income earners have felt hard done by, I think, in the last couple of budgets that they've been neglected. And I think maybe uh, that's an area they'll be looking to. Um, you know, I think they put out feelers as well around this time at these thinkings and, and see what the reaction is from the public. Mm. And... Um, I think, obviously, the Social Democrats are kind of a burgeoning party under a new leader. It was interesting to see Holly Cairns come out yeah. with the opposite, not not the populist view, True. maybe more of a frugal view. True. And, um, you know, these feelers are put out and they see what the reaction is. And as I say, with that, with the speculation that the election could be in the second half of next year, it's going to be a key budget for um, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and uh, the Greens. I think what you're going to see, uh, thank you, Joe, Joe Seward, I think what you're going to see uh, in 25 days' time on the 10th of October is both a budget and the launch of an election manifesto in one because they will give us hints towards next year's budget as well, all going according to plan financially. Um, that's what they will do for sure. There was a time, and it's not a million years ago, and Fergal will remember this, and so will Emer, and so will everybody else, who's anyway over the age of, I think if you're over the age of 30 or 35, you'll remember this. This thing that we all know what's coming in the budget weeks in advance is, is relatively new. There was a time when you didn't know until the minister stood up on budget day what was going to happen. But Sarah's not happy about that, the idea being, I wonder what would you think, the idea that, They'll do away with the television license, but they'll impose a charge on you for your gadgets, your laptops, your screens, your iPads, your iPhones, your um, computers, desktops, because we have them all. We all have them. We're all digital people now. We all have laptops and computers and screens and phones and everything in our homes. So it'll be a kind of a charge for the digital world. And that's how they might bring it in to replace the um, the television license. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Tom says I don't believe a word Eamon says. He alone, by my reckoning, has cost us sixteen million euro with the bikes for hire on the side of the road. His party is a total disaster. Oh eight one eight ninety six ninety six ninety six. Um, this is one. Catherine, or well, we've no name on this. We've no name on this. Uh, did anybody hear shots fired at around 2 o'clock this morning around Kilcully Cemetery? I phoned the guards. It's terrible that people won't leave the dead. Rest in peace. We know nothing about that, but if anybody else heard it, then they can let us know. At 0818 96 96 96. St. Catharines in Kilcully. We have a report on the phone of shots fired or what sounded like shots being fired at around 2 o'clock this morning. Our caller contacted the guards, but I'm assuming didn't hear anything back. 
Anyone else hear that? Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96 FM. The Big Drive Home. With Izzy Showbizzy. It's so good. On Cork's 96 FM. Join me weekdays from 4pm for the best music mix, the latest showbiz news and the takeover. Where you choose the tunes. Izzy, my lot in the car. Requested Jazzy giving me. And I'll 100% take more nice voice messages like this, please. Hi, Izzy. I'm listening to your new show. And I'm playing with Lego. My name is Connor. And I live in Glamire. Join me weekdays from 4pm. The Big Drive Home. You can drive me home. With Izzy Show Busy. Cork's 96 FM. 96 FM. Now, I mentioned there was a huge crowd outside or opposite chambers last night up on the steps of the courthouse. A huge, colourful, vibrant, fun crowd demonstrating and protesting against the, the, the changing of chambers, the rebranding of chambers to sinners for what we're told is just a week. We've been told it is just for the week. We've been promised a statement explaining more than that, but we're still waiting. We're looking at you, the Reardon's group. We're still waiting for the detailed statement or the more explanatory statement that we were promised two days ago. The only thing we know is it will be temporary. But there was a big crowd last night and a topic that came, or a term that was mentioned earlier in the week, which I hadn't heard in a while, is the term, the pink pound. Ed, morning to you. How are you, PJ? Yeah, so the, the, the pink pound now, first of all, I have to say I'm, I'm, I'm of a certain vintage, but I remember the, the coin of the phrase pink pound mm. uh, many, many years ago. I um, remember it, it was in the nightclub trade, and the reason, the reason it came up in the nightclub trade when I was working across the city was the pink pound was if you see a bunch of gay people in, play what they want, give them the music they want, A, it's great music, and B, they spend money. Yes, that exactly. was my direct instructions from either how many nightclub managers. If you if you see if you see a crowd in that you know are gay, you know, play their music, they'll spend money. That's where it yeah. came from. And there was yeah, there was a perception that you know uh, that gay people would be out socialising several nights of the week, and you know, I suppose at a certain time there was an element of truth to that because a lot of gay people would uh, you know many years ago would have been rejected by their families, so they would have had a chosen family. We'll say. And a lot of the social outlets kind of became their, their their crutch to deal with a lot of things emotionally. So it kind of ended up kind of um, being a twofold thing. So there's an element of, of truth within that there was a, a social element there. But the other side of it is that business, businesses very quickly found out how to take advantage of that. And so you ended up with um, with kind of uh, things like that that would happen where they, you'd go in and there suddenly the, the, all the music would change to uh, gay music or, you know, there would be venues that would... Um, you know, uh, kind of offer gay nights and stuff like that. But it, it was a relationship of convenience. Um, they weren't kind of a full-time uh, gay spaces. They were they were there they were places that that were uh, gay for a night for convenience. And my concern with um, the whole chambers debacle is that uh, it kind of fosters that uh, sense of a relationship that it was a relationship of of convenience. Um, and now that it's it's more convenient than for them to shift their business model to let's say focus on students, they're going to have what you know almost like that Ross and Rachel kind of break. Mm-hmm. It's not me, it's it's you. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can always you know <laughs> you can always come back in like a, in, in like a week or so. But um, 
what it does then is it, is it pulls the rug out from under an awful lot of people who rely on chambers as a, as a safe space. And I know that it's a, a private business and everything else, but you have to also acknowledge the fact that chambers kind of set itself up as a community space. You know, it, it actively competed for that space and contributed in, in, in some way to doing other um, venues out of business and pushing other gay-owned businesses out of business um, so that it, it, it owned a monopoly on, on the community, you know? Mm. So if you're going to put yourself in that position, whether it's for, uh, for altruistic or financial reasons, you also have a degree of responsibility with that, mm-hmm. you know? You, you, you can't pick and choose when you um, have a relationship with a particular community, whether that's um, the gay community, whether it's women, whether it's the disabled community. It's not about money, it's about allyship, you know? Mm. And at a time when there's a lot of nastiness out there towards the LGBTQ plus community, and in particular from people who wear green jumpers and stand outside libraries... Yes. I mean, I can tell you that I, I, I engage with a couple of people. I, I went to the protest uh, about two weeks ago and it was very interesting. You know, we've seen those videos where the people in the green jumpers, they go in and they're calling librarians, pedophiles and groomers and all this kind of stuff. And it was very interesting to, first of all, see a group of very nasty people shouting pedo scum F off home down at people, down at a group of people who are there to try and keep a library open. You know, um, I've never I never thought I would see that in the streets of Cork City in my entire life. Mm-hmm. You know, this is actually worse than 20 years ago when I when I first came out. Mm-hmm. First of all, on, on, on a number of fronts, we had uh, maybe four or five different full time um, gay venues at the time. You had the other place, you had That's Taboo, right. you had Loafers, right. you had Instinct. And these were all operating in conjunction with each other. And aside from that, you also had nights of the week. You could, you could go out maybe six, seven nights of the week to a gay venue or a nightclub and actually find yourself feeling at home and feeling welcome. Um, I remember when I was young, um, you know, it got to a stage where, where uh, you know, it was, it was almost welcome for gay people to be in businesses, welcome for them to be on the streets, to be affectionate. We didn't have that fishbowl society for a brief period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, now you have a, have a situation where um, gay people, they, they, they can't be affectionate in public because you're going to have a fear of those green number, jumper people. And, you know, as, as a side point to that, you know, I spoke to a gay couple at the at the library um, protest two weeks ago who had been pursued by um, those anti-LGBT people and, and you know, assaulted just uh, hundreds of metres from their own home. You know, this is the kind of behaviour that we're dealing with and they feel emboldened. That when you have chambers then deciding to effectively turn their back on the community, it doesn't matter whether it's for a week, two weeks, or forever. You're 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 basically kind of um, you're handing you're hot- a you're handing a win to a certain group of people. Yes, 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 and that, we're, we're in a situation like. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm 41 years of age, PJ, and uh, you know, a lot of my 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 young life would have been in in a precarious position because we had a lot more, um, we had a lot more hostility then. But we're kind of reverting back to open hostility towards gay people again. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I'm and, in a very and, com- and I spot that. I have spotted that because it's getting very angry of late. Ed, for no reason other than time, I'm going to have to wrap it there because I am gone over with the clock. Good contribution, and thank you for making it. That's Ed Fitz. 0818 96 96 96. As I said, still waiting on the statement we were promised.
48 hours ago. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Quartz 96 FM. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Text or WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Ports 96 FM. Phil was on to say, PJ, will you let your listeners know that if they're only going to cove today, it'd be a spectacular sight. The first visit of the Disney Dream Cruise Liner, departing at quarter past four. Thanks for that, Phil. Not really the day for going down looking at cruise liners, but it is what it is. Speaking of weather, um, good morning to Jess and Mabel. I'm a bit disappointed, you two. You came all the way back from Lanzarote and never brought me a splink of sunshine. You promised me. 0818 96 96 96. Come here. I, I, you know they say don't try something in France because the French won't take it. You gotta, you gotta hand it to the French in many things over the years because up with something they don't like, they simply will not put. And one of their biggest supermarket chains over there, you're never too far away from a Carrefour. Um, they're huge, right? The, the small Carrefours you'd see, that you'd put a decent-sized Tesco's behind the meat counter. They're enormous things. And in the Carrefour stores now, they've drawn attention to something I mentioned on the show during the week, shrinkflation. This is where the ingredients are changed or the size of the packet is changed or the content is changed to keep the price the same. And you think you're getting a bargain because we said the, the little pot of spread that you were buying a year ago is still the same price, you're not realizing that the ingredient has changed or that the weight has changed because you're just popping it into a shopping basket and you're being you're being diddled that way. But Carrefour have decided to draw their customers' attention to certain brands that have been shrink-flated. Um, and they've actually gone out into the... I love this. They've gone out into the shelves of the supermarkets and they've put stickers on the packets and the boxes and the bags of stuff that has been shrink-flated. Lint chocolates, for example. Lipton iced tea is another one. A certain type of infant formula, which I can't pronounce, I think it's called Guigos. Vianetta ice cream has been shrank by 30 grams, so it gets a sticker. And the Carrefour chief executive, a man called Alexandre Bompard, who also heads a big industry federation in France, said that the consumer goods companies are not cooperating in efforts to cut the price of thousands of goods, despite a fall in the cost of raw materials. So up with this, we will not put, and he's putting stickers on all the products who have been or that have been shrinkflated. And I say, well done, Carrefour. You somehow can't see... Super Value or Tesco or Duns or Aldi or Little here doing that, can you? Maybe you could, I don't know. You might see, they might do it in uh, in Hyperdino uh, in Spain or maybe Mercadona. They might do it there, but Carrefour, I love that. I, that's that's a story now that makes me smile on a, on a dreary Friday morning. 
I mentioned that Catherine had been in touch with something of a slap on the wrist. Wednesday morning, we started a conversation here in the opinion line, just out of nothing. I'd heard it in the news, someone talking about the price of baby food, baby powder, baby formula, baby formula. And I just mentioned that it's not subject to discounts and you're not... It's very expensive. It's gotten ridiculously expensive. Then Tasha called. She's a mum of nine or ten weeks now, and she tried to breastfeed, and it didn't work for her. So she went for, for formula. She had done stores vouchers or wherever she shops vouchers, and she found that, hold on a minute, you can't apply that to baby formula, and stuff is blasted expensive anyway. And there was a doctor on the radio who's recently just become a mother, and she was saying the same. She said, it's ridiculously expensive, and you can't apply your vouchers to it. We, we learned that the vouchers, we thought they were just an EU directive. They're not. Um, it's World Health Organization policy that we can't discount uh, baby formula for the first six months of baby's life. Follow on milk, you can. That's different, but the Formula for the first six months, we can't do that. And people were arguing here in the programme, look, it's the EU or big organisations or big governing bodies of the world, shall we, telling us what we can and can't do with our money and telling us what we can and can't give to our babies. One of the explanations is, look, so that all the babies get the same quality of formula if they're getting formula. Formula not put on special offer because it might be end of life kind of stuff. There are many. Anyway, we had a good old chat about it on Wednesday and indeed yesterday. Catherine, is this a slap on the wrist? It might be. Catherine says, I only heard the discussion by chance and it really bothers me. How are we to encourage new moms to breastfeed the next generation if they are constantly bombarded with ads for formula while they're growing up? Catherine says, and I quote here directly, bottle feeding is not normal, nor should it be promoted as such. Formula, says Catherine, is produced from a substance intended for a different species. The ads tell us how it's based on 70 years of research, but breast milk has developed over thousands of years of evolution. Scientists, according to Catherine, admit they really don't understand how it works, and they're making new discoveries all the time. Then she asks, and I quote, Why choose to feed your precious baby something meant for a calf? The benefits are not limited to baby either, because our bodies have evolved to breastfeed, and it affects our bodies. This is Catherine's words. It helps the womb recover from pregnancy and helps to prevent breast cancer. And, of course, there's the mother and baby bonding process. And studies show, I've read this, Studies show breastfeeding reduces the risk of childhood obesity. Catherine, the two things that stand out from me in Catherine's message, and look, she feels how she feels and she's entitled to feel that way. She said, though, bottle feeding is not normal, nor should it be promoted as such. I, I think she'll be pushing people's buttons there. And she also asks the question, why choose to feed your precious baby something meant for a calf? I'd appreciate your thoughts, particularly on either of those, and particularly on her claim that bottle feeding isn't normal, nor should it be promoted as such. I'll put that to one side for a minute. 
There was a study, it was in newspapers in the last uh, days and weeks, a study that was done among hundreds of secondary school students here in Ireland and in the UK about sexual harassment by teachers. And it threw up some very interesting and disturbing results. There was nearly 600 people took part. Nearly 250 of them were Irish. They were all over 18 taking part in the survey, but they were asked about their experiences in school. And some of them said they were asked on dates by their own teachers. Others uh, alleged they were touched inappropriately and called things they shouldn't have been called and spoken to in ways they shouldn't have been spoken to. One teacher said to a young woman of 14 or a young girl of 14 that if I wasn't his student, things would be different between us. Quite shocking reading, actually, in your papers. The survey was led by Dr. Kate Dawson uh, at the University of Greenwich. And she joins me now. We'll start by giving me the background to it, Kate, if you would, please. Good morning. Good morning. Um, yeah, well, so we started, um, I suppose, my research areas in the field of sexual violence and consent intervention development. So I was working for a long time with the Active Consent Programme in the University of Galway. And the research that I'm interested in, it focuses on hierarchies and how people kind of exploit hierarchies and exploit boundaries. And, you know, I was focusing a lot on teenagers harassing um, teenagers. And I started to dig a little deeper and found that there was really no literature whatsoever on teacher to student harassment. Um, And even just from conducting my own research over the past few years, this is something that's come up in interviews before, you know, that, uh, you, you know, people would have thought that this kind of behaviour with a partner was acceptable because they'd seen it all throughout school, for example, you know, wow. the teacher used to behave this way to them, for example. So that's kind of where it started. It was a pilot study, you know, started as a pilot study. We were kind of throwing it out there. We sent out one recruitment post on social media and we got over 600, um, I think we got close to a thousand people actually started the survey. Um, but then we ended up with 600 complete responses. So they're the ones that are uh, in the report. With, with the stuff there I summarised uh, before I came to you, was that content shocking when you read it back? Yeah, it was. And I mean, you know, when you work in the area of sexual violence, you end up having to sort of learn how to kind of distance yourself from the data that you're dealing with on a daily basis because it's, you know, can be distressing, can be very overwhelming. And this is the first time in maybe six or seven years that, you know, I, I went I went to bed after my data started coming in and I was reading through all of these quotes and I was just lying there like, oh my God, how is this happening now in our schools? Yeah. You know, when there's been so much awareness drawn to this with public campaigns, you know, around educating people about consent. You know, I live in London now, you know, and a lot of our data is based in London. And there's, all you know, signs all over the tube about, you know, how to identify signs of harassment, what to do if you see someone being harassed. And the reality then is that there's people adults who are dealing with children who are arguably you know like some of the most most vulnerable people in our society who aren't being trained on on I suppose on, on how not to harass somebody or what is appropriate what's not appropriate or inappropriate and since it came out your lines have been busy your emails have been busy people i think now see this report as an invitation to come and tell their story 
Yes. And um, I would say to your listeners that, you know, within the next few weeks, we're going to open the survey again. So if they follow me on Twitter uh, or Instagram, they'll be able to find the link there. But yeah, as you said, loads of people. I've had emails from teachers from different schools around Ireland and the UK saying that, you know, this is something that they've raised concerns about in their school before and that nothing was done about it uh, and that they don't that it's an issue that they they're seeing, you know, they're seeing examples of harassment um, and inappropriate behaviors, inappropriate sexual language and things like that. Uh, but they don't really know how to deal with it. Some teachers are being really proactive and they've been in touch with me about how do we develop trainings and things like that. And I think that's the next logical step. You know, yeah. obviously we need more data, but we also need to be able to to train teachers as well on, on, on how to be a bystander in these instances. We know that a lot of teachers are seeing this, so they should be able to call it out without feeling like they could be ostracized at work or they could lose their jobs or that they could completely lose their friend group, you know, because oftentimes these are people that they, you know, they like and that they're working with. And that's something that often is the case when you're dealing with instances of harassment is that it's not as if that person is just a bad person. You know, we need to stop thinking about harassment and violence in terms of being so black and white because good people, people we understand to be good people, good colleagues, good friends, you know, they can harass as well. And we need to step away from that so that people can report it. Hmm. Some of what I read in the report and has made media, it, it would have been considered when I was going to school as really creepy behaviour. You would have thought it wasn't something you would get away with anymore. But yet it's happening. Some of it, like people, teachers trying to kiss students, um, asking them out on dates. Like, it's just, it's bizarre. It is bizarre. And for example, some of the quotes, you know, uh, a teacher tried to kiss me at the Debs or whatever. This is in front of other students. And more than likely, there's other members of staff there as well. But a lot of the incidents, you know, they're not happening one to one. It's not like they're, yes, some examples are happening, you know, behind closed doors. Mm. But a lot of them are happening in the classroom. You know, a teacher sitting down beside a student and rubbing their leg or saying, you know, making sexual gestures directed at a student in front of the whole class and the class are laughing. You know, and this, the examples that we've included in the report are only a flavour of the data. You know, there were so many experiences that were very similar. So these aren't one-offs, you know. This is happening in various different schools across the country. We even had a few people who who had been to different secondary schools around Ireland, for example, and they said that I went to three secondary schools and this was happening in every secondary school that I went to. Something else that seems to come up is that when when a person, a student, would try to report behaviour that they found inappropriate or made them uncomfortable, they weren't always met with the right response, were they? No, uh, I mean, very few respondents said that they reported it. And those who did, they were kind of met with disbelief, just being like, don't, you know, stop making stuff up. You're causing a fuss, you're being a troublemaker. Or they were made out to be exaggerating. She'd be like, oh, so-and-so is, you know, they meant no harm by it. Like, stop overreacting. You know, they're a good person. There were a good few examples of people who reported more serious instances of harassment and the, that the teacher, you know, was, st- was still in the school. There's no reporting mechanisms in place, first of all. You know, it's very difficult for for students to actually report something without getting their parent or the, the school directly involved. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of uh, 
teenagers might not realize that there are alternative places where they can report things. But normally, you know, they're hardly going to report it to the the principal because in their mind, you know, the principal is probably best friends with the teacher. And then it's going to be very difficult to say to their parent because they'll think the parent is is going to go directly to the school. And sometimes they just need to to say it, you know, so they can get the support. Um, but I think it is very frightening for students when they think that, OK, if I say this, it's going to blow up. You know, I think that that's what their initial reaction is and that the control will completely be taken away from them. And we were talking last week about some of the reasons that girls leave sport in their teens. Um, And some of what's coming through this report, Kate, there's certainly a reason there, inappropriate behaviour by teachers and sports coaches. Yeah, you know, anywhere where there's hierarchies or where somebody has control, where an adult has control over over a child and kind of, I suppose, is dealing with them in an intimate way anyway, because, you know, when you're playing sports, there's less of sort of clear delineated boundaries around what's acceptable with regard to, you know, maybe even walking into changing rooms and things like that. It's harder to call out a teacher for walking into your changing room if they're your coach. You know, it's so things like that can can start in that way. But yeah, there were some, uh, some of the findings did speak to experiences that were very severe that are probably not appropriate to say on the radio. Well, give me some idea. You don't have to go too graphic on it, Kate, but give me some idea because this is serious and it's happening in the real world. So give me some idea. Okay, well, as you know, there was um, a respondent who who was very young when she filled out the report or filled out the survey. She was 18, between the age of 18 and 24. So meaning that this has recently happened to her in, in school. Uh, but she was at an event, you know, like an athletics related event. And that the teacher who is also leading this sport took her to uh, a kind of a private location and closed the door and then put his hand down her jersey and pass, tried to pass it off as if he was helping to regulate her breathing, but he, he was stroking her breast. And you know, when I first read that quote, I was like, oh my God, you know, this is, I, I never imagined that that would come up again in the same data set within only 600 people. But there were three examples of that, three examples in Ireland, you know, where teachers are using this, making an excuse to touch a person's body. Um, and I think that is obviously when, you, when you're playing sports, it can create, you know, further opportunities, I guess, for predators to exploit mm-hmm. a young person. Unfortunately, there were examples in the school context as well, you know, that teacher saying something like, oh, it looks like you're getting a sunburn and opening a student's blouse and touch, putting their hand on their breast. So it beggars belief that people can get away with this. Um, and that is what has been happening so far. Now, you say you'll be opening this survey again, and certainly feel free to contact us when you do. But what do you intend to do with all of this data, all of these experiences? So I guess, it, you know, it's only when we have nat- nationally representative data or, or enough data to kind of present this as an issue that needs to be addressed. Because at the moment, we can say, look, to the Department of Education or to the government, like these are experiences that people have had. But with regard to you know, recent experiences, we don't know if this speaks to 10 people or to one-tenth of the Mm. whole population. So we need to collect more data in the first instance so that we can develop um, better reporting mechanisms for for people who've experienced this, but also training for teachers. Guidelines need to be clearer on what's appropriate and what's inappropriate because it's not good enough to just hope for the best and think that common sense will prevail because oftentimes that's not the case. 
it's a tough read, this report. It's a brief read, 20-something pages, but I think it's a very important one. And thanks for taking my call today, Kate. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Dr. Kate Dawson. Just that thing she said to us there about, you know, happened to young women at sports events. Mm. It was earlier this month, or at least late last month, I think earlier this month, we were talking about some of the reasons why so many young women leave sport. Uh, I'm not saying there's a connection, but then again, I'm not saying there isn't. 0818 96 96 96. Just on Catherine's comment about breastfeeding versus bottle, and the two things that struck out to me from her message was breast bottle feeding is not normal, nor should be promoted as such. And then she says, why would you give your precious baby something meant for a calf? Now, on the phone, someone here says, I think Catherine means biologically normal. She's not talking about a social norm, just to help you understand it. Okay, I don't need help understanding Catherine's words. She is saying very clearly, bottle, it's her view to which she's entitled, Butter, bottle, butter, bottle feeding is not normal nor should it be promoted as such. I would think that any young mum who has tried and not been able to breastfeed or been overwhelmed by the prospect of breastfeeding as the Queen Bee was 20-something years ago, she just didn't want to know. She found it overwhelming, the prospect of trying to handle twins, which, you now you can see her point. But that message from Catherine is pretty much telling them they're not normal. And that's how I interpret it. So, and I'm not even one of these people. 0818 96 96 96. Do you remember the Blue Zone? Did you watch it after we were talking about it last week? The Blue Zone's documentary on Netflix uh, with Dr. Dan Bootner. I was only out last night at an appointment. Getting me feet looked after, if you must know. And um, the, the person doing it was saying that they'd been told about this season series. And I said, yeah, I've been talking about it on the radio and I've watched it. It's very, very interesting about those parts of the world where people live much, much longer. Mary's been watching it and she's quite fascinated by it. Catch up with Mary next. Join the conversation. This is The Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cork's 96 FM. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. People giving out, or one person giving out on the phone to me about uh, speculating, myself and Joe speculating about what might happen in the budget. It's too far away and it goes on too long. It's 25 days away. It'll be upon us before we know it. Um, but it's nice. It's, I, I always enjoy trying to guess what's in the budget and see can we can we figure it out in advance. But thank you, caller, for that. And on the idea that Eamon Ryan's had, which he voiced on another interview this morning, that maybe we could change the television license into a household charge 
so people can't refuse to pay it. That seems to be where he's going with that. Mike says, the Green Party are driving themselves out of government. That's from Mike. One or two more political ones have come in, um, including this one, which says, um, give Sinn Féin a chance. This is the facts, everyone knows it. The government are slaves to the EU. The EU is a dictatorship. The cost of living is the highest in Europe. The cost of buying your own home is astronomical. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are in government. And it's laughable, considering they both said no at the last election. Sinn Féin will win the next one, hands down. Well, do you know, that'll be, that'll, that'll, that is to be seen. That is to be seen. It'll be very interesting. The next day they go to the polls, regardless of when it is, will be a very interesting day. Indeed. 0818969696. Now, something that's been happening over the last few weeks is the number of people eligible for free visits to their doctors has gone through the roof. To be fair, this is a government delivering on a promise. They did say they would do this, and they're doing it. Maybe a bit sl- more slowly than they said they would, but they're doing it. Uh, since the 8th of August, children under 8 have become entitled to free GP care. That's an additional 78,000 of them. Since the 11th of September, which is just earlier this week, uh, another 200,000 people became eligible for free GP care on a means-tested basis. And more people, that'll extend to more people again by the end of the year. Nearly half a million people more than this time last year, by the end of the year, will be entitled to free GP care. We'd all love it. Maybe we'd all get it one day, I don't know. But how is it going down with the doctors? Dr Dermot Quinlan is a medical director of the Irish College of General Practitioners, runs a successful practice in Glanmire, and he joins me. Dr Quinlan, I, I think I'm fair in saying you're not against this. In fact, you welcome it, but there's not enough doctors to do it at the moment. Good morning. Good morning, PJ, and good morning to your listeners. The Irish College of GPs warmly welcomes the extension of the medical card system to another quarter of a million people in September, with a further quarter of a million people becoming eligible through means tested in November. And that's in addition to the 80,000 children aged 6 and 7 who got medical cards earlier this summer. That's over half a million people who will have got access free at the point of care to their GP and we warmly welcome that. Ireland is an outlier in the EU in that in the EU most people have free access to their GP and the evidence is that free access to GP improves patient well-being, improves patient's outcomes and reduces hospital attendance. However, it's not without its challenges. Mm. We are currently experiencing a major GP workforce crisis. So currently in Ireland, we have about a headcount of 4,200 GPs. The Medical Council, the HSE, the Department of Health say we should have at least 50% more doctors. So that means we need to go from just over 4,000 to over 6,000. So we have a major GP workforce shortage. In addition to that, we have continually expanding workload. Our population is growing. We now are over 5.1 million for the first time since the famine. Our patients are living longer. We now have the longest life expectancy among people in the EU, and that is super. Yeah. However, older people, you know, they tend to accumulate lots of diseases like high blood pressure, osteoporosis, heart disease, lung disease, dementia. Um, and older people need substantially more GP care. 
the we know the expansion of the medical card system when it was brought in for the under sixes. This this cohort of children it increased their attendance at the GP by thirty percent. Now the really important piece about this is that that brought their attendance up to the European norm for children that age. So. It's not that they're over-consulting now. Previously, they were under-consulting because, because of the financial yeah. barrier. So we welcome that. But all of this has substantially increased the workload of GPs. And then finally, we have an aging GP workforce. One in seven or 600 GPs are aged 65 and over. And in my estimation, they will largely have retired by the end of 2025. What you're outlining to me, Dermot, is a situation where doctors have no problem with extra people having free access to consultation. What I'm hearing you saying very loudly is there's not enough of us to take the natural pressure that will come with that. It's going to get increasingly challenging in the months ahead and in the next year or two for GP, for patients to see their GP. We are. We will very shortly be starting the rollout of the influenza and COVID vaccines, and that's really important in terms of keeping people healthy, particularly older people. But it is a very substantial additional workload on GP practices, and we simply don't have enough GPs. We don't have enough GP nurses. We need to double our number of GP nurses. They do a phenomenal job. Your listeners will be well familiar. All the baby vaccines, cervical smears, blood tests, ambulatory blood pressures. Our GP nurses do in excess of 8 million consultations a year between just over 2,000 of them. Right? They are really hard. You're, you're very short of them though, aren't you, Dermot? We are very short of them. We know we need to go from 2,200 GP nurses to well north of 4,000. And, you know, again, we are working with the HSE to uh, establish that and to get pathways underway because it is a really important role part that if nurses can undertake some some more of the roles that GPs are currently doing, uh, and I'm thinking of maybe of people with stable high blood pressure, people with stable diabetes, that they're ideally suited for an appropriately trained nurse to look after under the supervision of a, of a GP. That will allow the G, that will free me and my colleagues to see people who are acutely sick or people, with, for example, with diabetes whose blood results are indicate they need their treatment to be intensified. So it's about getting the right skill mix in general practice, increasing our workforce, our GPs, our GP nurses, our admin staff. And then with that, we need uh, a proper infrastructure. You know, we need bricks and mortar if we mm. are going to expand our GP uh, team. Then we need larger premises to do that. So it needs a, you know, it needs a reasonable expansion of our GP workforce. Over the last 15 years, the GP workforce has remained relatively static. And we now need a sustained investment in general practice so that patients can continue to get high-quality, timely access to their GP. Is there some way, Dr. Quinlan, to make it more attractive for young doctors who finish their, and for want of a layman's term, their compulsory hospital time and are going out there into the field? You know, you can't just put up a brass plate. You've got to go back to college, as it were, and, and, and do your specialty. Is there a way to attract more of them into it? Um, we have rapidly and substantially expanded the number of GP training places. We are substantially oversubscribed. We uh, General practice is a really attractive career option. Mm. Uh, I love my work. I love general practice. It's really challenging. It's intellectually stimulating. It's very demanding, but it's very rewarding. Um, we are very substantially oversubscribed to our GP oh, really? programs. So you have more yeah, people absolutely. want to get into it now than before. Absolutely. Good. Yes. Well, that's, a good, that's, that's good to hear. And the job opportunities, so I'm speaking to my colleagues across the world, in England, the UK, Canada, 
Australia, New Zealand, America. There are lots of opportunities for GPs overseas who would like to relocate to Ireland. We would love to hear from you. There are jobs everywhere from Donegal down to Dingle and from Dublin right over to Oranmore. Are you appealing to, to Irish doctors who, again, it's kind of like a rite of passage for a lot of young doctors. They head away for a few years. Are there jobs here now for them if they want to come back? There are jobs here now and there are jobs all across the country and not just Irish doctors. So if we have doctors in other countries like Canada, America, New Zealand, Australia, uh, England, our nearest neighbour, if they would like to come and work in Ireland as GPs, we would love to hear from them. We would be very supportive of them and help them to integrate into Irish general practice. There's lots of opportunities. It's a really good time. Yeah, because I was talking during the summer to a number of doctors who couldn't take a holiday because they couldn't get locum cover. Like the shortage was very acute there. We, we saw, us public, shall we say, saw it as very acute over the last few months. It's a huge problem. Uh, there are a lot of GPs, particularly in smaller practices, maybe with just one or two doctors who simply cannot get somebody to come and work in their practice if they're away. So I would know lots of doctors who've had little or no annual leave since the start of the pandemic. That's going to put people off wanting to get into the gig. It is certainly a barrier. However, you know, we are addressing that. And this by the end of this year, we will have 100 GPs on our non-EU GP program. We will take in 285 GP trainees this year and 350 next year. We get calls every week and emails every week of places where the GP's books are full and you can't blame the person. that Their books are full. Many practices, many GP practices, their books are full and, you know, you can't, there's no point in saying to someone, yes, you can join our practice and then when they're sick, you know, and they ring up, they can't get seen. Yeah. Um, so there is a huge challenge and um, it is, you know, it is not likely to get better in the months or the next year or two. Mm. We do face a challenge and that's why, again, I would appeal to your listeners, having the, the flu and COVID vaccines will help people to stay well over the winter, particularly the people of extremes of age, young children and older people, those with, you know, other illnesses, people on immunosuppressant drugs. Getting the, the flu vaccine, the COVID vaccine is so important. Mm. I wanted to finish actually by coming back to that one, uh, the COVID vaccine and indeed the flu vaccine. We're coming into to autumn and into the winter. Is the COVID vaccine available to anybody who wants one or what? Um, it's not quite available to anyone who, who wants one, but it will be widely available. We know for sure it will be people, say, over 65. We know for sure it's going to be certain cohorts of younger children. We know for sure it will be people with other chronic illness like diabetes, uh, heart disease, COPD, people on immunosuppressant medicines. A huge amount of people uh, will be eligible o- over the months ahead. Dr. Quinlan, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Dr. Dermot Quinlan uh, practices in, in Glenmire. Uh, thank you for that. And it's good to hear so many new doctors coming on stream. I did hear, uh, I'll tell you more about this next week, but when I'm back next week, um, there's one of the doctors I spoke to earlier in the year uh, who was very stuck for cover in the surgery, has got some cover and are very happy with it which is good to see. 0818 96 96 96. Now back to Dr. Kate Dawson and the research um, that she did about sexual harassment in schools where there was about 500 people or 600 people interviewed in Britain and Ireland 
uh, and said they'd experienced sexual harassment by a teacher. They were all between the ages of 18 and 24 by the time they took part in the survey. So not exactly old people, but people who've been through the school system recently. Geraldine, you were listening. Good morning. Hello, Geraldine. Hi. Hi, PJ. How Hi. are you? You, you heard um, Dr. Dawson. You wanted to say something. I did. And and look, I presume, you know, Dr. Dawson, obviously it's a very important um, study she did and a, and a survey. But just from my own point of view, I worked in a school for nearly 20 years locally in Cove. Um, now, not teaching as an SNA, but I just thought that it's important to let parents know that I've never witnessed anything at all inappropriate, but also that when when teachers start back, and this applies to, I presume, every school in September, they don't go back. When the kids go back, it's like, say, there's always three days previously where there are intensive child protection courses that have to take place. Um, and also, you know, you're informed of within the school who the designated person to go to is if you see anything inappropriate and you're actually obliged to it's not like oh you know I think I will or I think I won't you're obliged to do and report go and report anything Mm. it's generally the vice principal who will have to act on it and the principal will have to act on it and they're very intensive and I'm sure you know I just felt that was important to kind of say that because if you're a parent listening you know, possibly thinking, oh, my God, are my kids okay? And I presume, you know, the study, I would think would be, you know, slightly historical, maybe. I don't know. I could be well, wrong. Well, well most but of the people who took part are now aged between 18 and 24. So it's not the dark ages. It's maybe the last you know, five to ten yeah, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not, not diminishing it in any way. Very important, obviously, mm. to have done it. But just kind of... I kind of thought it was important to maybe say just because I wouldn't have been aware previously to working in a school that, you know, you know, all the safety, I suppose, the safety precautions and all the protocol that's in place in every school now. Um, So just that was it simply to I would like to say that because. I mean, I would have great admiration for the teachers that I worked with. They do a great job, and mm-hmm. the schools do a great job under extreme pressure. Indeed, now, indeed. Lots of different areas. But just I thought it was important to say that um, yeah. maybe parents weren't aware of all of the... And, like, it's a very serious issue, and the teachers and staff take it extremely seriously. You yeah. know, to the extent that you know the way you would... I, I would say teachers would even be afraid to give a child a pat on the back, you know, that kind of way, yeah. as opposed to back in the day, you know. So I just thought it was important to say. And and, and, and very well said, uh, Geraldine, okay. very well said. No problem. Thank you for your call. Much appreciated. Yeah. Cheers. Okay. Thank, Thank you, you, PJ. Bye. Thank you. 0818 That survey is all over the newspapers. Google it and you will find it. One thing that Dr. Dawson did say is that the findings of this study must lead to future study. That's how good research is done. You do a research project, you find out something, then you go back and you do deeper research and maybe you'll find out more. Thank you, Geraldine. Excellent call. 0818 96 96 96. 
Brendan says doctors should be asked to stay in the country for five years after being educated here. Yeah, yeah that's a point, Brendan. They have to do, I think, one year or is it two in a hospital to get themselves up to house officer level or house officer grade in a hospital. And then if they get a job in the hospital, they can stay in the hospital. But many of them, loads of them do go overseas for a year, two years, three years, five years. If you're going to be a GP, you have to kind of go back to college and study that. But good point. Thanks, Brendan. 0818969696. Right, it's time for hours to protect. Um, that time of the week again, Maureen uh, is doing hours to protect for us this week. And she has been discovering more about disposable vapes. They are a scourge around the place. Disposable vapes. And Maureen has been looking at a campaign to do something about that. It's coming up next. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Line. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Corks 96 FM. Hours to Protect. Brought to you by Corks 96 FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out hours to protect.ie for more info. This week on Earth to Protect, we learn about a campaign to ban disposable vapes in Ireland. Vapes were originally produced to help people trying to quit smoking, and for some, they still serve that important purpose. However, single-use disposable vapes are growing more and more popular, and they've become one of the defining images of our throwaway culture. Lindsay O'Connell is part of a campaign with Voice Ireland to ban disposable vapes. We've lots of different campaigns in Voice, um, and one of them is called Picker Pals. And we have primary schools up and down the country... Um, who go out on litter picking adventures and over the last few years we've got a lot of reports back from, from young people and teachers and all of the people we do litter picking with and they're seeing these disposable vapes in the environment more and more and we're like we're talking about a huge increase here so the kids that we work with are seeing these so much in the environment um, and because they have batteries and because they can just keep going for 600 puffs um, the kids could then pick them up and taste them themselves and what they don't realise is that they're very high in nicotine. So we came at this campaign originally from an environmental perspective but there are so many different facets to it. There's really strong health implications. Whether or not you vape yourself, we can all recognise the environmental issues. The biggest problem with disposable vapes is that they are, well, disposable. These things are made of lithium, they've got copper in them, they've got really nasty chemicals as well. And when they go into our environment, they break down, those batteries can leak and all those chemicals get leached into our environment. And they're really poisonous for our wildlife, but also ourselves because it's going into our waterways. And there's thousands of them. Like in the UK, we don't have the figures in Ireland, but in the UK they say we're selling uh, two disposable vapes every single second. And now the top recycling centre in the UK that can recycle these disposable vapes can only recycle 700 a week because they have to be done by hand. So there's no way we can keep up with the amount that we're selling. So the environmental reasons are, are one of the, you know, the highest reasons why we got involved, but also the health are super important for us. And there's one more reason as well. And that's to do with the valuable resources that are stored within those tiny devices. So, like I said, you've got these really valuable resources that we could be using to power our green um, revolution. So, lithium, the things that we use for our electric cars and their batteries, copper, all of that is going to waste on these disposable devices. And the number one take-home point, I think, from this campaign is that there's no reason for them. 
we have a reusable alternative already where you can recharge it and you can refill it and it can be powered again and again for years. And we don't need this disposal. So if, we, if Ireland really wants to take the circular economy serious and if they want to really move away from single use, then not only do they have to ban this item, disposable vapes, they have to make sure that they never give the go-ahead for products like it again. An estimated 10% of people under the age of 25 in Ireland use disposable vapes. Lindsay says the level of education around disposable vapes is not in line with the rise in uptake. So we have a lot of, um, there's vaping shops as you can see as you walk around, but also there's these online vaping shops. And to get into those vaping shops, you just have to say whether you're over 18 or under 18. And no one's going to check if you're actually under 18 when you've clicked the wrong button. And then you can order these vapes and they get sent to you at home. So it's very insidious and not only are are, are people able to access these very easily, but they're sent to their homes and then they're not given proper um, advice on how to recycle them. So part of our campaign is we went around to retail stores in Dublin City and we asked 20 retail stores where we bought disposable vapes. What will I do with this when I'm finished with it? And every single woman said the same thing. Just throw it in the bin. It's disposable. In actual fact, these products are supposed to be we. And as you know, we we products have to be returned to the store so they can be recycled and the valuable materials can be taken out. So even at the point of sale, the retailers aren't educated as to how valuable the resources are within these products and what has to be done with them. So not only are we seeing the increase of the sales of them, we're seeing a complete lack of education in terms of what could be done with them. So even if we did want to kind of come up with some EPR scheme where they could be returned to a recycling box, we don't think that would work because the level of education just isn't there. If you do use a disposable vape but want to still do your bit for the environment, Lindsay has this advice. If you do use a a vape, we would always encourage people Please return it back to a Wii store. So that could be DID Electrical, Paracity, any of the, the electrical shops that accept electronical goods. Or back to the point of sale where you purchase it, hand the disposable vape back to the retailer and tell them it is your responsibility to get this recycled. It's a Wii product. And by doing that, at least it's going back into the system and can be sent off to be recycled. And um, whether or not the retailer would do that, we don't know. It's not guaranteed. So we would say to people if you're going to vape, please use a, re- a reusable one. To learn more about the Ban Disposable Vapes campaign, visit voice.ie or check the show notes of this episode. Hours to Protect, brought to you by Cork's 96FM, the IBI, and funded by Commission Naman with the television license fee. Check out hourstoprotect.ie for more info. The minds are live. Join the conversation. Call 0818 96 96 96. Extra WhatsApp 083 396 96 96. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. This is the opinion mine with PJ Coogan. 96fm. Yeah, I anticipated some pushback against what, um, what was the same Catherine was saying about breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. It's something we might not get back to today, but we will almost certainly get back to after the weekend because it's an ongoing one. It really is an ongoing one. I'm not here at Monday or Tuesday, by the way. Paul and Gareth uh, falling in to mind the shop, so be- behave you lot. But, uh, but yeah, we will certainly return to it. But a few comments coming in in, in response to to Catherine. I might get to some before we finish. Maybe not. Also, a response. I've just got a response here to to Geraldine, who was commenting about Kate Dawson and the survey among 
school children or people just graduated from school and their experiences uh, at the hands of, shall we say, less than dodgy, or more than dodgy teachers. Uh, Geraldine came back to say that in her time working in school as an SNA, she never really saw anything out of the way and indeed that the child protection protocols now are huge. And she's corrected all those things. We'll see where that one goes to. Uh, 0818 96 96 96. But there is a huge interest. I think it kind of started with programs like Who Do You Think You Are? and other such things. And I know in my own house, my missus is fascinated by tracking down her family tree. We were in Dublin one time. We were in a hotel and there was a history of the family that owned the hotel up on the wall in reception. And she recognised a name that was in her family lineage. And she's from that day to this, trying to connect herself to a set of millionaires in Scotland. I don't know how she'll do. It'd be nice to know. It'd be handy if you, handy if you, Bob. But there is an interest, and particularly with people tracing globally, and in America in particular, tracing their roots back to Ireland. They say that there's between 40 and 60 million people around the world who can trace themselves directly or first or second generation back to Ireland. And probably tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of those can trace themselves directly back to Cork. It's getting the first step and the last step is the problem. Sometimes it starts with a photograph. Sometimes it starts with just a chance meeting. Sometimes it starts with, hang on, you remind me of someone kind of thing. Uh, I want to talk to Kieran Jordan and Mike Fierick, who both are behind Ireland Reaching Out, which is, I think, Kieran, it's a kind of global community of people who think or know they have a connection to Ireland or can help someone to learn more. Have I got it in one? Good morning. Good morning, and thanks very much for having me. Um, it, it, first and foremost, I suppose, it's a voluntary organisation, and those that are involved do all the work on a voluntary basis. Yeah. Uh, there's two main aspects to it. One is a, a message board where uh, people can put up a message and uh, the volunteers then answer the message. And I would say 95, 96% of the messages are answered uh, with some kind of an answer. It might not be the answer people are looking for, but mm. it's a help along the way. And the second one that, that I'm involved with a good bit is Meet and Greet, where we meet people that um, request a meet to uh, introduce them to the area where their ancestors came from. Yeah. And uh, it it can give something like a meet in Greek can give so much more than records because what I find is that people in areas know things yeah. and it's not on any record uh, but they know where the Nugents lived back yeah. in the 1850s yeah. and they see the house and yeah. I think that's a much greater experience than can be got from the the records now the records are great yes. and you, you kind of amalgamate the records and the kind of um, local information and that but it is the idea and Mike would tell more on on this the the idea of it is to encourage people to get back to the place of their ancestors yeah. and have a good time and spread the word. Yeah, I'll, I'll bring Mike in at that point, Kieran. Mike Fierick. Um it's it sounds to me like a Bush Telegraph kind of operation. Mike, good morning. <laughs> How are you? And thanks for having me on. 
Well, it, it, it is very person to person for sure. Uh, we do use technology. So IrelandXO.com is the website that you go to. So if you're, um, you know, you talked about the Americans, you know, if uh, a, a typical case is somebody's in Kentucky and their great great grandfather comes from Ireland, they have minimal information and they don't know what to do. Now, um, you know, there, there are basic rules that you can do. There's basic things that you can find out in five and ten minutes on the Internet if you know where to go. But knowing where to go is, is, is the key thing, right? Yeah. So, so we have two sets of volunteers, and, and our volunteers are all over the world. Uh, lots of them are, um, nearly all of them, of course, are part of the Irish diaspora that you mentioned, 60 million, 70 million, 80 million, whatever the number is. It's, it's very huge, and it's a huge resource that Ireland uh, as a country, north and south should be tapping into because it's an un- it's an unusual resource that we have. But in any case, if somebody's in Kentucky and their great great grandfather, what they do, uh, they have the details. They go on to Ireland XO and they put up that note. And our volunteers are very enthusiastic. They're uh, sometimes they're like a bunch of piranhas jumping on the on the. Uh, on the information, and they'll quickly tell the person, all right, this is where your people are from. But very often, as Kieran was saying, the last mile is a little difficult. Mm-hmm. They will, they will, you know, and how I came into Ireland, reaching out many years ago, so I'm talking to you from Lockeray, County Galway. I grew up in a very rural parish. I grew up in a country shop, and one day O'Connors came back from California, and, did, and they, they stopped in the shop and they asked, you know, where is the O'Connor house? And there was only two people in the parish that knew really where the O'Connor's house was, myself and an old lady who wasn't available. They went back to California after a trip of the lifetime and had got so near, but they just didn't get there, right? So then it just occurred to me, look, there has to be an organization whereby you can do all the research online, but when you go into a local village, it's hugely useful to meet Mm. somebody locally because then with, with a bit of research, they can show you the house that the people were born in, the land they farmed, the graveyard, and if possible, re, uh, introduce them to living relatives. And that happens in a surprisingly number, a high number of instances. And I think the key thing is, it's not all give, it's also get here. It's an awful lot of fun for the volunteers, and, uh, and it's very emotional to meet people coming back. Yeah. And when they come back into a townland, you're almost certainly related to them anyway. Because yeah. if you're there for a few generations, you're related to quite a few families. Yeah. So that's why we have the volunteers locally. And um, as you mentioned, Cork is probably the top county in Ireland in terms of diaspora. The, the, the percentage of diaspora around the world sure. that are connected to Cork is higher sure. than any other county because of the number of people that left Cork, particularly the west side of the county. I have so many Irish-American listeners and so many of them could claim heritage to, to West Cork. In fact, the number of people who've settled here, who've come home from America with Irish roots, are settling in West Cork. So I totally agree with you there. Kieran, bring you back in for a second. And I'm, I'm through, through great friends over the years, I've been involved with a little bit of this myself through adoption tracing and finding out, you know, where someone's birth mother might live. And there are various skills involved. But come back to what you said about public records. Public records will take you so far. If you know how to read them and know how to interpret them, they'll take you almost into the right village and street. But as Mike said, it's the old lady in the sweet shop who will take you that last mile. I suppose what I would have found in in my many meet and greets is that um, if you can identify where the family were in the 1850s, and that's relatively straightforward for most of them, uh, and you go to that area, invariably you find that there are people in that area that are related to the original family from the 1850s. So I have a bit of a neck on me, so I just knock on the door <laughs> and I, 
and, and I say, is there anybody here um, related to, uh, to, to Tobin's? And I did that in Kilbenny one day, and yeah. the, the, the man the, the man said to me, he said, "Well, my name is Shaknessy, but my grandmother was Tobin from across the road." Ah, well, now there's Kilbenny. There's a place that's not on the Dublin Road anymore, but was for years. <laughs> and you had a great story from there. Well, yes, as I said, that was. Oh no! The 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 people were were uh, able to come and visit the house that their ancestor was born in. Uh, they were able to meet some Turks who uh, went over to the cemetery, showed them where people were buried, and there's that kind of local knowledge and local information, as I said before, that you don't get on on the internet with the records and the experience of that. For the people coming and for me myself, I quite enjoy yeah. um, meeting people and helping them out. Yeah. And um, I, it just adds a lot to a visit. And the, the hope is that they go back and tell their friends and uh, that there's, there's you never know who you might time. be. And, was there a and, Duffy and, family uh, in Mitchellstown as well, Kieran? was there? There was, yeah. Um, again, I went to where the Duffy family were in in Danworth in the 1850s, and I said, "Is there any Duffys around?" So they pointed me to to two brothers. The two brothers had uh, eleven other siblings, and uh, were able to email around and chat around, and and uh, we had a gathering. Then there was too many people to gather in a house. So we gathered in the hotel in Michelstown. Fantastic. They, they were quite closely related because these two brothers that I met originally were first cousins of the mother of the people they were visiting. Get so away. they were quite closely related, and it was very emotional. And again, one of the one of the, the people that we met in Michelstown, uh, he lived in the home place, having built a house right beside it, but was able to say this is the house that your great-grandmother was born in Isn't and this is where she lived and this is the bridge that your great-grandfather built because he was a stonemason and uh, that kind of uh, as I say local knowledge that people know locally they, people think it's not important but uh, to me it's, it's very important Absolutely. those little bits of, 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 of knowledge that, that help people along the way Mike, how might one get started if, if, if you think that you know that you're related to someone from Carrigaline? How do you start? Oh, well, so on the website in IrelandXO.com, uh, we, we have, there's different ways to engage with the website according to what you know, right? So, for instance, if, if it was Carrigaline, you would go, you would identify quite easily which, what is the parish? Now, Kieran would know better. Is Carrigaline a parish on its own? Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know the, the local thing. But essentially, through the website, you would be able to find out whether, what parish, where the civil records are for Carrigaline. If you didn't know that local and you didn't know Carrigaline, but you knew Cork, what you'd do is you'd go to the county part of the website and you'd say, look, I know my people from Cork um, and I don't know too much else, but this is what I know. And it's amazing, even a little bit of information can go an awful long way. So once then you put in, say, either Cork, people, volunteers around Cork uh, County will, will contact you uh, and, and help you from there. But if you actually are able to identify the actual parish and you go in there, then the local volunteer will, will reach out to you and say, all right, 
um, uh, I acknowledge your, your note and often enough they'll have some information almost immediately that oh. say, all right, I know who you are. You have nearly <laughs> and, a thousand um, people around the world doing this. Sorry? sorry? Nearly a thousand people doing this as well. Yeah, there's, uh, we have a lot of volunteers that are around the world just who have this as a hobby. I mean, some people spend four and five hours a day on Ireland reaching out, particularly in, a, in America, Fantastic. which is great. It is, where, it is. Where, where we could really do with help is what Kieran is doing. So we've been very successful, and the number coming over uh, coming to Ireland is increasing. So Kieran can only do so many meet and greets. So I guess what, one thing we'd, we'd like to do is to appeal from people through your program is to say if this is something that you'd like to get involved with. If you like meeting people, if you're proud of your local area and you'd like to show people around. We're not asking people in Cork City to show people around Mitchellstown generally, but we, we're asking if somebody's coming to Mitchellstown, you know, would, would you meet them? Because you probably know that place as good uh, as anyone else. That's where we need help because of the success of the programme. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun. And I just wanted to tell you that, you know, we had a, we had a, a group coming over to one meeting uh, to, we brought over 30 people that we did reverse January. Uh, a, a, a parish in, in Galway, what they did was they found out who left. Instead of waiting for people to come, they, they said, well, all of these people left. Where are they? And they, identified, they, they identified 30 people in America and invited them back. And we had a wonderful time. What was, what was extraordinary was that I said, let's have a follow-up meeting and, and see what we did right and maybe what we can improve on. Would you believe 68 local people came up to the follow-up meeting? <laughs> Why? Know, it's, it's great. There's a huge yeah. interest in it, you know, on a television programme. And as the world, I guess, lads, last in briefly with you both, as the world gets smaller, yeah. and we're all connected through these little small devices in our hands, as the world gets smaller, the prospect of finding people gets even better. Oh, absolutely. And, and uh, then we can bring in AI. <laughs> no, stop. Don't even go there. <laughs> Listen, thank you both. IrelandXO.com. We may catch up again because it's a fascinating field. IrelandXO.com is the website to go and take a look if you want to get stuck into that. Mike Fierick and Kieran Jordan. Thank you both. There's a great story I was told one time. I'll tell you next week because I'll have to dig out my notes on it. But it was a story about a reunion or a rediscovery rather than a reunion that happened in a bar in Boston where a guy, his wife and his daughter were gone shopping and he went for a wander and on a summer's day, as you do, he wandered into an Irish pub for a pint and he ordered his pint and behind the counter was a GAA montage of stuff and there was a programme from a match in which he had played in the 1970s. And there begins a story. I'll give you that next week. I must go and look up my notes because it's, it's, I've, had it, I've had it a while. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Kieran. 0818 96 96 We're back to breastfeeding next. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. Now, I read... Uh, Catherine's message on breastfeeding breastfeeding versus bottle feeding, which grew from our discussion uh, on Wednesday and Thursday on the price of baby milk formula and you can't have discounts and all of that. Two of the standout lines from Catherine's email was bottle feeding, bottle feeding is not normal, nor should it be promoted as such. Why would you choose to feed your precious baby something meant for a calf? Clearly we know where Catherine is coming from there. She's entitled to her opinion. Of course she is. But Lisa, you were listening. Morning. Hi, Peter. What did that email say to you? 
Um, it kind of struck a chord a small bit because um, my son, I had no choice but to go on bottles. Like, he was on breast milk for a little bit because he had to go to the neonatal unit for a while. Mm. And um, the nurses there were absolutely amazing. They didn't say I had to do it. They gave me the choice. And I said, I'll express for a while because my body wouldn't leave him actually feed off me. So basically, if it was before formula and stuff like that, my son wouldn't be alive. So, you know, the the bottle feeding actually kept him alive because I didn't have enough to produce to keep him alive. So he, you, your body wasn't making enough for him. Exactly, yeah. And, and of course, we're always told by those breastfeeding advocates and look, they're well-meaning people that yeah. that mother's body will always pr- produce enough, but but yours wasn't. No, definitely not. Um, and I remember kind of, I suppose, just after having a baby and he, my first and only child at the moment, but um, he was like, they were, they kind of said to me, oh, your body isn't producing, so you will have to go on bottles and at the time, there was a big, big thing about breastfeeding and all this. So I was like, have I failed as a mother? What, why is my body doing this? But it's all just natural. And I had to, he had to go on bottles to keep him alive. And he's a healthy little boy now. So, Good. What age um, is he now, Lisa? Sorry? What age is he now? He's nearly nine. Ah, good for him. Yeah, yeah. You see, there, there, I, I, I just felt that some of Catherine's email was a bit, staunch in what she was saying fully entitled to a view though she is uh, but yeah you... I think people need to start like people need to open their eyes a bit more I know people have an opinion but sometimes they don't take others opinions into it either mm. so I think people need to kind of open their eyes a bit as well like in my situation yes I would have loved to have been able to breastfeed but I couldn't yes. so I had to take the other option Yes. And I did, and I'm very grateful for that. Indeed you are. Lisa, thank you for your call. 0818969696. Uh, these restrictions, are, and this is again on the restrictions on baby food from being included in vouchers, say. These restrictions are in place because companies were found to have marketed baby formula to moms in areas with dirty water in the third world, even though it was making babies sick. Irish farmers or people shouldn't take this personally, but there's just a lack of trust now when it comes to those companies. Because while they did not break the law, they obviously tried to maximise profits to the limit. Okay, that's not signed one, but thank you. I've been listening to what the lady said about bottle feeding, and bottle feeding is normal. That attitude between breast and bottle is going to make women who don't breastfeed for whatever reason feel inadequate, especially new mums. It's not that easy for every woman to breastfeed. It doesn't come naturally to all of us. So her point of view, to which she is entitled, does more harm than good. It's a personal thing. Let's not make it a complete issue of right and wrong. Either breast or bottle. You choose. And that is from Pauline. And April says, does that lady realise some women just can't breastfeed? A very small-minded attitude. That is from April. Thank you. Um, I don't want to forget, Jimmy, before I go to the break. I don't want to forget, Jimmy. I was, we're 33 years married today, says Jimmy. I was 33 years old when we got married, and I'll be 66 in two weeks' time. It's all the threes. Happy anniversary to the Queen Michelle, says Jimmy in Cove. Thank you, Jim.
0818 happy anniversary happy birthday and happy all the threes 0818 96 96 96 so many young people are choosing to nip off to Australia for a year or two not full emigration just getting out there to sample what's to be found Denise is one of them. I'll chat with her next. 0818 96 96 96. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, focused solely on your hearing health for over 35 years. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie. Cox 96 FM. So many people are now headed down under to the Land of Wonder for a year or two. And it's kind of part now of growing up. There was a time when emigration was very final and a letter home took a month to get here and there was maybe one phone call when you could afford it. But now the world is a much smaller place. So loads of people are travelling. Now, we used to talk regularly to Denise Corton. Uh, she writes or wrote for Stellar magazine and we talked showbiz, we talked celebrity, we talked telly. In fact, with Patrick Keelty on the Late Late Show tonight, we probably have talked to Denise about that in a previous life. And then she went and vanished on us. And I've only discovered this week that Denise is in Sydney. <laughs> How long have you been there, Denise? Morning. Good morning. I have been there since October 2022. And just thinking about it there, I was like, geez, we're coming on a year now, which is just crazy because time absolutely flies. And especially over here, it seems, because I just can't believe it's nearly been a year since I left my beloved Ireland and moved to Sydney. Yeah. Why did you want to go or did you want to go? I definitely wanted to travel. I, I, to be honest, I wasn't completely set in stone with Sydney at the very beginning. I was kind of unsure. I knew I wanted to go somewhere, but I didn't know where. And then my boyfriend, Sean, the two of us sat down and we thought, OK, let's list out all the places we'd like to go. And by kind of a process of an elimination, we came to Sydney. We thought, OK, they speak English there. They drive on the same side of the road. Mm-hmm. It should. We have lots of friends there, of course, as well. So it should be quite an easy adjustment. And I, it's safe to say it has been such an easy adjustment. We absolutely love it here. It's just, it's paradise. It really is. Weather-wise, for sure, big difference. Yeah, and it's, um, it's expected to be an extremely hot summer for us because it's um, going to be heading into summer now around November time. And mm. the predictions of the heat are just astronomical. They're already even doing some backburning and preparing for bushfires so that we don't get another run of them like what happened in 2019. So, um, yeah, the, the temperatures are set to soar this summer. Yeah, I mean, it's springtime there now. Um, you, you know what life is like in September here at home. Weather has depreciated badly in the last couple of days. What's what's it like now, springtime in Sydney? It's hot. It's very hot. And it's actually hotter than usual, I'm being told by locals. Um, we're getting, like in Sydney alone, we're getting highs of 27, 29 degrees, which is not the usual springtime here. The usual springtime here is about like... 18 to 20 degrees so yeah. it's it's quite significantly hotter but um, I'm not complaining because obviously I just literally adore the heat so any yeah. opportunity I can to go to the beach I'm there. How close are you to a beach? <laughs> a 10 minute walk so the suburb I live in is called Randwick which is a massive suburb for Irish people alongside Coogee that got renamed yeah. County Coogee yeah. due to the amount of Irish people there so um, that's where I'm based close to the sea. So let's talk about living in Sydney for a start compared to say living in in Dublin or Cork cost of living what have yourself and Sean got and what's it cost you it's do you know what it's it's expensive it's quite similar to home in a lot of ways I won't lie 
the cost of renting an apartment is pretty similar to what I was paying in Dublin. The cost of doing a food shop, pretty similar to what I'd be paying in like the likes of Super Value, Dunn's, that kind of thing. Of course, there's Aldi here as well, which is great, you know. Mm. Yeah, it'd be quite similar in price. And then the only thing that is significantly higher is definitely your wages. Your wages are a lot higher than they are in Ireland, which then means that the money that you do spend on, let's say, rent and your food shopping and the things that are similar in Ireland, you're left with more disposable income, which is nice because it's not something I saw in Dublin ever. What, the the Australian dollar, it is about one and a half to the euro or one and a third to the euro or something like that, isn't that it? That's it, that's it exactly, yeah. Yeah. So, And what about taxes then, Denise, like taxes on income taxes? So when you're on a working holiday visa like I am, so it's the visa 417, you pay a standard tax of 15%. So that also helps a lot compared to 15. what we were taxed in Ireland, you know, when you're just, yeah, 15. <laughs> and, yeah, that's, and that's 15. it. Yeah, that's it. It doesn't change no matter. Now, like if, if you're making, you know, let's say two grand, 2,000 Australian dollars a week, or if you're making 4,000 Australian dollars a week, you're just taxed at 15. I think up until like your first, is it 40 or 50,000? So yeah, yeah, crikey, fantastic. Crikey, crikey. Now you're working as a network editor. I sure am, yeah. So my whole plan when I was moving to Sydney, I thought, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of a break from the journalism. I still write a column back home for Stellar Magazine, the, the job I was working in before I moved to Australia. So I was like, I'll keep that going on the side. And then aside from that, maybe I'll just take a total break from media. But of course, when you plan to take a break from something, it finds a way of following you. So yeah. when I moved over here, I got a job as network digital editor in News Corp. So News Corp, oversees loads of different outlets and publications and I'm working across four major ones which would be the Daily Telegraph, the Courier Mail, the Adelaide Advertiser and the Herald Sun so they span across New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Queensland so there's one in each kind of state you could say and my job is just to kind of edit across the board on the websites. That sounds like an exciting gig. It is exciting you know it's it's really really exciting and it's lovely to see how different media outlets work in different parts of the world because I'm, you know, so used to it in Ireland. Uh, it's really nice to just see how, how it's operated somewhere else. So, yeah, I really, really am loving it. And, you know, the Australians are just so much crack that we get on so well in the office and everything. I can't, I honestly can't complain. There's a the thing. We had some Australians through this building over the years and I always got on very well with them. They don't mince their words. They If, if they think something, yeah. they're going to tell you and you need a skin like crocodile to work around them. You know what? I think that's the one great thing about already working in media is that you have that skin to begin with. So when you go to Australia, you don't even bat an eyelid, you know? So, uh, (laughs) so yeah, they're really, they really do tell it how it is, but it's nice, you know, because there's no rubbish with them either. You could say like they just, um, they're quite straightforward and it's it, it's nice because uh, it's definitely it's definitely a change. Yeah. I know that when they, when I worked with them here, those that were here, they liked being in Ireland. Do, do they like you guys being there with them? Do they like the Irish? To be honest, it depends on who you meet. I think it, be, it can be quite hit and miss. Some people love the Irish and the ones that have probably had a bad experience with Irish, there's a bit of an eye roller like, God, there's so many of you here kind of thing. Yeah. But... 
most of the experience I, experiences I've had have been good ones. And they're like, good. oh, we do love the Irish, you know, you know, we do bring a lot of crack and things like that. I know it's so cliched to say, hmm. but um, even in the offices and things like that, they really do love the humor of Irish people. And in ways, it's quite similar to Australians. So, um, hmm. so yeah, we, we get we get on quite well together. We really do. There's a pub culture there, like there's a pub culture here. Absolutely, absolutely. The Australians love to drink, so they do. So <laughs> we definitely get on in that department anyway. And the bars, the nightlife and everything here, it's great. It really, really is. It definitely closes earlier than it does in Ireland. Oh, really? Australians love to get up at the crack of dawn and go to bed early. That's one thing I've really noticed. And I'm like, geez, 12 p.m. and everyone's ready for bed. And then if you go f- walk the beach at five, six in the morning when the sun is rising, it is absolutely packed with people out walking their dogs, running, exercising. It's a very healthy way of life that they have and they love getting up early. And you know what? It's so easy to get up early when everyone else around you is doing the same thing. Yeah. I even find it in Ireland during the summer when you've got the bright mornings, you jump out of bed you compared to you, you do in the winter, you know? You do. So, yeah, I love it. I love getting up early and I love walking down to the beach and seeing people out exercising and starting their day and everything. It's so nice. And then obviously when you wake up early, you're more tired earlier in the evening. So then you kind of fall into the nice Australian way of life, getting up early and going to bed early. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Is there an exercise culture that goes along with that? Oh, yeah. Mad in Sydney anyway. The exercise culture is crazy. I feel like the only thing that you see on a Saturday and Sunday morning is people in gym gear. Like you see no one in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt until about 2pm. Everyone is just kitted out <laughs> in gym gear. And I'm only speaking for Sydney alone because I don't know what it's like in, yeah. other, in other cities, but Sydney is crazy on the gym. Even like trying to book a gym class on Saturday or Sunday morning, you have to book them days in advance because they'd be booked out for like the 6, 7, 8am slots. Really? 6 o'clock on Saturday yeah. Oh, morning? Yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. And the night out, like the pub price of a point, Denise? It would be probably the equivalent of about nine euro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's about $15 for a pint. And then the big common thing over here is that people drink schooners, which is half a pint. It's like a small kind of... The best way I could describe it is like a little kind of stumpy glass. Stubby. And it's Stubbies, they call yeah. them in, in the Australian strain language. Yeah, stubbies. It's not yeah, quite exactly. a pint and it's not quite a half pint. Yeah. And they would be about nine to eleven dollars. Seven yeah. or eight euro. Yeah, about seven quid. Yeah, oh, yeah so yeah, it's an expensive night out. Yeah. What about a burger and chips on the way home then? Oh yeah, that's expensive too. Like maybe like seventeen, eighteen dollars. Like probably heading towards twenty. Twenty or fifteen quid. Yeah, and then a cocktail. The average price of a cocktail is about twenty-four dollars. So you'd only be wanting one cocktail with your dinner. Tour. $20, $20, probably what? Fifth, eh, would that be 15 euro? Yeah, about 15, 16 quid. So mm. yeah, like again, yeah, anytime it, you convert the prices, it's not too dissimilar to no, home. No, I mean, they're about, just, four, they're about 14 quid, 12 to 14 euro down in downtown now at the moment for a cocktail. So yeah, yeah. it's expensive enough. So not too far off it. Yeah. And the one great thing in Sydney is they do fantastic happy hours. So happy hours are great ways of saving money if you're going out drinking for the night. Trust the Irish girl to find the happy hour. <laughs> Denise, get, get, getting around public transport. Public transport's fantastic in Sydney. Yeah, it's absolutely. You have the light rail, which is quite similar to the Lewis in Dublin. 
Um, then you have just the, the normal bus service. That's mm. fantastic too. And they all run on time, which is absolutely great. And then Uber is the major thing at nighttime. Uber runs the streets. I right. don't even really know if people actually flag taxis anymore, but Uber, Uber would be the major one. What's the cost of a bus? Is it cheap? Oh, it's so cheap. Yeah, I think when you tap, so you just tap on with your phone mm. on the bus, you know, like your contactless card, your Apple Pay, that kind of thing. And it's always about, what is it? It's about about one fifty, about $1.50. Okay. So it's probably only about 80 cents. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, it's about it's one thirty-five with a leap card here in Corks. That that's that's not too bad. But there's more buses and they're and they're more frequent. And do they they probably run later as, as well? There's another thing that you brought up that we t- talked about a lot here in the program recently: cashlessness. Is is Sydney gone cashless, or do people still spend cash? Sydney is super cashless. Uh, I don't even know how often I have actual physical cash on me. Very very rarely. I think I think in most places if you pulled out. A twenty dollar note, they'd be like, "Oh, what do I do with this?" You know, because everything is tap. People are putting in the price into you know the the scanner for tapping your card before you even say that you're paying with card. Quite wow. you know, quite similar. Like Dublin was kind of going that way as well yeah. before I left. So yeah, yeah, a, it's yeah. all kind of heading towards towards a cashless society, isn't it? Yeah, you have the choice though, I suppose, if you wanted to pay with cash. That's the big discussion here of late, that you still have the choice. I'd be so pro-card, but I know there's so many people, my dad included, who still loves using cash. So, (laughs) so I don't know. I don't know. But um, yeah, Yeah. I just find it so convenient and you're not dealing with change and that kind of thing. So you're there on a holiday visa, which means what, two years. You used to talk to me before about wanting to live in Cork. Is that still on the radar? Oh, it still is. Yeah. Cork is my home home. You know, it's it's where all my family live. It's, you know, where I grew up, where my friends live. So Cork is still the main goal. Sydney is just a bit of fun before I eventually head back there, you know. So, um, so yeah, Cork is, is definitely still on the radar. And I even like keep up to date with everything that's happening in Cork and so on and so forth because like I'm just so Go on, tell me you listen. Home, tell me you, know? you listen. Go on, tell me you listen. <laughs> I listen to you, PJ, every day. I don't miss a show. Yeah. Lastly, um, for people, because I know there's loads of them, thinking and planning to do what you do. And I, I, I often say to people, I have very few regrets in life, but the one thing I, one, regret, one regret I do have is that I didn't do what people like you are doing uh, when I was a lot younger. What advice would you give them with regard to, to setting out for that couple of years? just jump and do it you know it's something that I never saw myself doing because I thought I was always too scared to do it I thought that you know I had gotten too deep into my career that I didn't have the opportunity to leave I thought so many things and I just got extremely comfortable and when you get comfortable you don't have the same kind of ambition or fire underneath you to go but my best advice is to do it and it's something you'll never regret the hardest part is up until the airport and then once you leave it's just phenomenal and it's just such an eye-opening chance to learn it's so exciting there's just so so much of the world to see and like you said it's just one regret you don't want to have you don't want to regret not traveling while you can so i would say to anyone just do it and like my parents always said to me if you don't like it you can always come home mm-hmm. so it's it's worth trying as as liam riley wrote years ago in that wonderful song flight of pearls those big airplanes go both ways exactly exactly because i think a lot of people think when you go to australia you have to commit to it when in fact you really don't you know if you come here and you hate it 
you can turn around and you can go home, you know. So, you know, and it won't be for everyone, but I can assure you that you need to try it in order to make up your mind. Denise, enjoy the rest of your time there. We'll talk again. Cheers. Thanks so much. Thank you. See ya, Denise. God, she's loving it out there. Would you blame her? It sounds great. The weather. I mean, the weather sounds just fantastic too, doesn't it? Just Yeah, but it all starts tonight with, with Paddy Keelty. The launch was a bit a bit naff, was it? That they, you'd barely got a second or two with him yesterday. I think I think what they're trying to do now is is that they want to make people feel like he's a celebrity. Does that make sense? As in, he's not as accessible as Ryan Turbidy was or Pat Kenny or whoever it was. Mm. And I think that's what... But then again, do you know what? When I was there, the journalists were asking, well, what about your kids? Have you unsettled your kids? Uh, are your kids happy? I was like, why are you talking about his kids? We're not the UK. We're not, you know, rags. We are a proper country who respect that level of privacy. And it really went down that area. And I was going, this is really weird. Yes. Like, okay, ask about Kat Dealey and his wife being on SMTV Live with Ant and Deck and doing all that. That's open game. But yeah, I felt the kids' questions now were, were very, very weird out of some of them. Yeah, I, and some of the stuff in the papers. I mean, his wife and his mammy won't be there tonight. There are better questions. Like... He was asked how excited he is. Look, it's the biggest gig in Irish television. Of course he's excited, isn't he? Oh, delighted, delighted. And T.E. We've got that here, actually. Hold on a sec. Uh, at this stage, excited. Excited. It sort of feels that, you know, the anticipation and all of that stuff and people talking and, um, you know, all of the, the, the stuff that's, that, that's gone in the past. It feels now couple of days out, see the pitch, time to get the boots on, time to make a show. And so the one thing that I promised myself right the way through this, but you know, this week more than ever, is if if you if you're not here to enjoy it, if you're not here to actually every little bit of this week to enjoy, then what's what's the point in doing the job? So um, will there be a few butterflies? You know, there will be. But ultimately, you know, gonna try to take it all in and, and, you know, suck every last brilliant moment out of it. It sounds like he's really looking forward. I mean, I don't know if we've discussed him before, Crossy, you and me, but I think he'll do a good job. He's whip smart. He's quick off the mark with a joke. And he's very bright. I think he'll do a good job. What do you think? I think he's going to do great. As long as they keep away the, the heavy stuff. You know, I, I think, you know, Patrick Kilty is a funny man. He's a comedian. He can have the crack with the audience. And I would like to see a kind of a new era for the late, late for stuff like that. He's got a great background. Um, I, I think tonight, tonight everyone's going to be watching. I hope they don't judge it on the first half hour. I think they need to, you know, maybe two or three late, late mm. shows in and go, oh, this is what he's going to do. I have heard rumours with guests. I can give you rumours. Go on, go on. I have rumours that... I've rumours that someone from the Ireland women's football camp or ex ex Ireland women's football camp Vera could be there. I, I I've heard a rumour. I've heard a rumour okay. that yeah, that'd be a great one to get. I've also heard Hosier maybe. Uh, Ten years take me to church recently. He's got new music out. He's playing gigs right across Ireland and all over right. the world. They'd be two big ones to get. Just rumours I've heard. Yeah, I hope they're true. I'd love to see what he has to say to Vera. I think Vera has a lot to say, yeah. and I think she's been quite quiet. Yeah. So that could be explosive. That, that's the thing, like um, you said. Yeah, it, it, he's going to make it fun, but he is superbly intelligent and very much. Oh, yes. And so he will be able to do those kind of gigs, you know? As in, yeah. talk to Vera and maybe get more out of Vera than, say, Tony O'Donoghue would have done because Tony is a sportsman, but Keelty is going there as... Come here to me. Here's what the fella down in down in down in <laughs> here's what the fella down in Bruff County Limerick wants here. 
wants to ask you, you know? I- and it's so important. And you know what? I've never seen so much, not excitement, but people are interested. Mm. Um, I always find that the Late Late's been on our TV screens, what, for what, 60, 60 years, is it? Yeah. But it's always been there for people. Yeah. And now you're kind of going, oh, there's a new person here now. Like if yeah. you're, tw- and you're 25, 26, all you remember is Tuberty. What, well, what, so this yes. is going to be new. What strikes me, though, as positive was, I think he was asked about, you know, the master. I mean, he is taking over the job that the master used to do. And he was asked about Gabo, I think, at that press conference. You know, I, I, I think growing up on the show, you know, watching Gay do his stuff, um, I think the brilliant thing that, that he used to do was uh, he talked to the audience as much as, you know, down the camera. Uh, it, was, it was like coming into the parlour. And I think, you know, that for me is what this show is. There'll be... Yeah, he wants to get involved with the audience, which is great. Are you going to go across the year just watching on the telly? Have you got a ticket? Would you believe, would you believe, I live about a 90-second walk from the gates of RTE. And uh, I'd love to go over, but no, I'm sitting in, bottle of wine tonight, looking forward to it. Uh, good old night ahead. Right. <laughs> I don't know if you feel sorry for me or think it's great. <laughs> uh, well, I wish, I, 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 I prefer you were there and get all the atmosphere for you, but we'll chat about it next time. Crossy, good to talk to you. Uh, thank you very much. And the best of luck from one broadcaster to another. The best of luck uh, to Paddy Keelty tonight. Join the conversation. This is the Opinion Live. With Hidden Hearing, changing lives with the latest hearing health technology. They're all ears. Visit hiddenhearing.ie Corks96FM Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.